Life Podcast, and I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode five. Hard to believe, but we made it. Episode five, coming to you live and direct from Oakland, California. Very grateful to be with you all. And it's been uh, quite a couple weeks, once again, since I last spoke to you. Really, uh, really, again, humbled and grateful. I feel like I say it every week, but uh, the response and the uh, feedback that I've gotten from the podcast and last week's, or last episode with uh, none other than Weedy Brema, uh, Master Jumbe Fola, the fantastic interview. So thanks everyone who checked in, listened, uh, communicated with me or with him, uh, everybody who uh, hit me back regarding Swanee Halloween. Uh, still kind of processing everything that went down. Um, do want to say that I uh, produced my usual reflection on the festival, uh, a little different this year, and it did come out on Live for Live Music called Swanee Halloween 2018 Interplanetary Good Vibe Zone, and it is a lengthy and deep look back at the festival and the resounding reverberations. Um, yeah, still just sort of speechless, if you will, from the experience. So shout out to uh, Paul Levine, Michael Berg, and the big man Michael A, who reached out to me personally to thank me for the piece, and uh, you know, there's no higher praise than from a fellow like that. So, yeah, you guys are the fuel. Everybody who reads and responds and shares and talks to me about, you know, documenting the culture. You know, that's really why I do it. And this was a powerful uh, exercise. This year's Swanee Halloween piece. Uh, emotional to say the least so if you're so inclined or curious or were there or missed it and wish you were there or really if you have any inclination to find out uh, what the magic of Swanee Halloween is about check out my piece on live for live music um, want to just give a couple of thank yous uh, to some folks in the community that in one way or another you know help me do what I do or uh, help the podcast or help up for life the brand uh, we'll start with uh, the Gnome Co., which is uh, based out of Asheville, North Carolina. The Gnome Co. is a multifaceted 
company, uh, Mobile Elixir Bar, and a conscious catering service, of, as well as Bioregional Apothecary. Uh, it's headed up from by one of my dear friends, Miss Jill Trashley, uh, who I've known for many years and very close to, and watched her grow this amazing company from just a awesome idea to fruition. And now she's doing big things with the Gnome Co. and the Village Witches down at Envision Festival. So uh, shout out Jill Trashley and the Gnome Co. Also want to give a large up to Gray Area Productions, which is an awesome concert promoter uh, based out of Pittsburgh, PA, and headed up by a fine gentleman, uh, Ben Penegar. So we want to uh, shout out to Gray Area Productions, the Rex Theater, of course, Ben and Evan Kahn, just the whole crew out there just doing the damn thing. Um, if you ever find yourself in that area, the Rust Belt, um, you know, always look to see what's going on at the Rex and anything Gray Area puts their hands on. You know, it's going to be a quality live music experience. I also want to shout out Mikey Spice and Spice Media Group. Mikey kind of is uh, holds my hand through the uh, internet programming and, and website stuff and coding and all that super technical stuff that's essential if you want to kind of operate in that paradigm. Um, so Mikey, uh, you know, also is a part of a you know, fantastic band, also from Asheville called The Fritz. Sweet funk band. They played at Hula. Uh, they're kind of born out of the region, uh, Jacksonville area, but decamped to Asheville a few years back. And they're a funk phenomenon themselves. But uh, the shout out is to Mikey Spice and Spice Media. I feel like kind of the behind the scenes uh, internet graphic design, more more just uh, website building and, and conceptualizing ideas and stuff. So check him out, Spice Media Group. And uh, Mikey Spice. And check out the Fritz while you're at it, too. Solid, solid band. I also want to uh, thank some people out there, some listeners that have been steady with their feedback and communication. Um, you know, they know I'm new at this. Y'all know I'm new, I'm new at this. And uh, the support has been empowering and emboldening. And, you know, I just want to recognize a few cats that have... Uh, come through. Uh, one is a fellow named Mike, Mike Kerr, out there in uh, Alabama, a uh, southern boy. I know him from uh, Bear Creek and Jazz Fest and so forth. And, uh, you know, he's always uh, been supportive of all the type of media stuff that I'm doing. He's an uh, amateur photographer himself and pretty good, among other talents. But, uh, yeah, he's had some very kind and, and heartwarming and, like I said, empowering words for me personally, when I encountered him and his lovely wife, Allie. Uh, they're both huge Jamiroquai fans, and uh, you know, their love story is intertwined with their the band's music, and uh, it's pretty awesome. And Mike is just a big supporter of all things Upful Life, but I guess the podcast has really, really uh, resonated with him, and he told me in no uncertain terms how he felt. So I just wanted to publicly and unabashedly acknowledge that uh, on the air and, and shout him out because uh, it really, really meant a lot to me. So thanks, Mike, and keep listening. And love the feedback of all kinds. And another 
cat who I don't know in real life, but I've communicated with periodically on the web, uh, on social media. Fellow clone, like myself, part of the Jungle and the Jim Rome show, which is a time-honored tradition that I'm uh, not ashamed to admit that I've been a clone for you know, the better part of two decades. So uh, when you encounter other clones, uh, other listeners to the Jungle, Jim Rome show, uh, in the music game, in, in the music industry, or in the festivals and stuff, it's just funny. Um, and somehow we figured out that we were both clones, but he's been an avid listener of the Up for Life podcast uh, from Jump Street, and he's got uh, constructive criticism and feedback on nearly every, uh, actually, not nearly, every episode. And I just wanted to read the most recent uh, reference to episode number four with Weedy Brahma. Uh, Jimmy says, episode four is the best pod to date, sinner. <laughs> your interviews are choice. And uh, con your tracks continue to sonically reverberate a message of unity and hope. The plethora of genres are slowly giving way to a broader, more open plane of music. I call it thesis music, or music that presents ideas, both linguistic and ethereal. Keep it up, man. This is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. Anyway, that was a pretty heartwarming message to receive from Jimmy and SLC. So, uh, we appreciate you. All the listeners out there uh, who have reached out or just downloading and listening and in some way, you know, putting the vibe out into the ether. So thank you for supporting the Upful Life podcast. Moving on. Oh, I also wanted to shout out one more cat. My bad. My man Peter in Scotland. Uh, Peter's a part of the Catskill Chill family and uh, a fan of, you know, a lot of the music that I've covered through the years. And he's been listening in all the way from Scotland, Peter Cornfield. So I uh, just want to send a big up across the Atlantic. Thank you again for supporting me and the Up for Life podcast, uh, not just here in the USA, but around the way, too. So since uh, we last spoke, not only did uh, not only did uh, we put out the Swanee Halloween article, but I was lucky enough to interview Random Rab, phenomenal singer-songwriter, producer, artist, uh, you know, savant, wizard. I have so many adjectives for Rab, and I have a close affinity for his music and his person. And uh, it was an honor and a privilege to get into his Sprinter van, Sprinter van with him. Uh, it was a sold-out show. He played along with Dirtwire here in Berkeley. So coming up soon, maybe even next uh, next episode, it'll be Random Rab when we go pretty deep. Um, also in that window of time, uh, I was super blessed and lucky, like I always say, to catch uh, the 25th anniversary of Kruder and Dorfmeister's Kruder and Dorfmeister. Uh, basically, they kicked down the wall for me in electronic music in the late 90s. Um, one of my old 
hometown homies, Ross, uh, kicked me the uh, K&D sessions. Uh, sophomore year of college, maybe, even early junior year, whatever it was, like 97, 98. And, uh, you know, I was a fish, fish kid and a deadhead, and I liked hip-hop, but uh, really wasn't down with electronic music too much, you know. I dabbled a little bit, but kind of close-minded at the time. And, uh, yeah, this double-disc record uh, completely revolutionized uh, how I heard electronic music, and uh, along with LTJ Bukum. Basically, the Krudendorfmeister and LTJ Bukum were the, you know, initial seeds that, you know, slowly, and I mean slowly, but steadily sprouted into what is now... You know, I have an intense love and interest and just really into electronic music of all kinds. But it started with K&D and uh, my very first trip to California, 2002, um, I came out here and was by myself and this is pre-social media, early internet days, you know, actually visited the Jam Base headquarters for the first time uh, at the base of Mount Tam. Back then, it was still the old school team, like uh, Deanne Herman and Andy Gadiel and Teddy Kay, and I think Aaron Case had just gotten there. Um, yeah, heady times. But anyway, um, so on that trip to the Bay Area, uh, got wind of Kruder and Dorfmeister playing um, at a club that's now defunct and name escapes me and I've spent the past week and a half trying to remember it. And I know I will eventually. I looked online, I couldn't find it. Um, but bottom line was I went over to this uh, club, which is multiple stories, and it was just an eye-opening experience for me as a young lion on the West Coast, seeing things for the first time. And um, I made a post on Instagram about uh, this, you know, the sort of cylindrical nature of how this evening, uh, last week, on the 25th anniversary, uh, I just kind of mirrored, in a lot of ways, cosmically mirrored uh, that night back in 2002. And Kruder and Dorfmeister played a blistering, like a two hour and 50, or you know, two hour and 45, two hour and 50 minute set. Uh, it was a fantastic voyage. It was, a, it was what a DJ set should be in the sense that it had many emotions and told stories and was peaks and valleys and ebbs and flows and you know like queuing up drops, big explosions, wind it up, rinse, repeat. I mean, there's a time and place for that kind of stuff, but this wasn't it. And uh, Kruder and Dorfmeister are artisans and are creme de la creme what they do from the early stuff with the G stoned and the DJ kicks, uh, series that they contributed a timeless record for. And then of course the aforementioned, uh, K and D sessions, which if, if you don't know, you better ask somebody because, uh, it's essential listening. Um, and they destroyed, uh, the other night and you know, the crowd was an older crowd obviously people like myself who found them, way back when and, you know, the room was packed at the Midway SF and it was a 
just a monumental, joyous affair. And after, like, you know, starting off with some mid-tempo stuff and some kind of hip-hop vibe and down-tempo, they went basically two solid hours of awesome house, classic house, deep at times, soulful, funky, um, just vibey house. And then as they turned the corner and went uh, down the home stretch, they hit you with uh, speechless, with a Count Basic drum and bass. Um, then they came with the uh, Depeche Mode cover that they do, and a cover Depeche Mode remix. Um, it's called Useless, and finished with Going Under which is another one of their beloved songs, uh, Rockers Hi-Fi, kind of like dub reggae, down-tempo. Just basically sex. I mean, music just is an Afro... Their music is an aphrodisiac, if I've ever heard one. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to... Since I didn't get a chance or really have the opportunity to produce an article about the evening, uh, I wanted to just talk about it because it was that special. So shout-out to Kruder and Dorfmeister. Um... G Stone recordings and just that whole scene, which is apparently still alive and thriving. Also, in this uh, past couple of weeks, we got to go to the Beastie Boys book tour, sort of like a quasi biographical play um, and talk with Mixmaster Mike in the mix, uh, as well as Mike D and Ad Rock. It's pretty funny, pretty emotional, definitely enjoyable, and the book is absolutely killer. Um, got two nights of Joe Russo's Almost Dead. Uh, J-Rad came and, you know, predictably crushed the Fox Theater in Oakland. Um, meanwhile, uh, Lettuce, uh, along with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra, teamed up for what's already been termed a historic, legendary performance. Uh, unfortunately, I uh, was unable to make the trip, but um, anxiously looking forward to uh, their official release. There's talk of a Pro Shot DVD. I know they had Pro Cruise there. A monumental, historic evening for the boys in Lettuce. And, you know... Just really proud of their meteoric rise. They've had a hell of a year. Uh, the JGB tribute, the symphony, uh, they're on the precipice of a three-part new record or 30 songs split up over three records, and they're just crushing the game. So I want to large up Hill Clinton and Bo Williams, who are kind of steering the ship behind the lettuce scene right now and doing a bang-up, phenomenal job of it. Indeed. So yeah, let us hit the symphony. And uh, the results were magical. I've seen some videos on YouTube. You can check them out. The quality's not that great, but you get a sense of what happened, which only makes you thirsty for the real thing. And of course, we haven't even touched on the fish from Vermont and their... Uh, big tour-ending four-night stand in Las Vegas, Nevada. 
which has become customary rage for so many of us. Um, with all the Halloween madness, I was not able to make uh, Vegas this year. Um, but lucky for us, my good buddy J.A., Delaware Valley fish historian, has uh, made himself available for a brief chat uh, about Vegas. Now, Fish was on the tail end of their fall tour. They had uh, played Chicago uh, the weekend before, three nights, I believe, um, which was during Halloween. They also had some uh, they had some stops in Hampton, uh, Nashville, among other spots on the tour. So they came cruising into Vegas and. Uh, J.A. flew out from Philly, uh, linked up with the crew, and took it all in. So uh, we'll have a powwow with J.A. coming up soon, uh, dedicated to Fish's uh, fantastic and uh, really just genius prank for this Halloween of the Casfot Voxed Scandinavian Prague Band uh created out of thin air um, for those that are not indoctrinated into the fish thing uh, every Halloween fish dons a costume when they choose to play a show on Halloween which is about more often than not at this point and they used to play uh, another band or another artist's record in its entirety and uh, they've moved on to some more creative stuff over the past three uh, wingsuit and uh, the thrilling, chilling sounds in 2014, and then now, Casfot Voxed, which uh, I gotta say, I was skeptical, and I tell my friend J.A. that, but really impressed, very, very impressed and astounded by the originality and uniqueness and humor, yet uh, there's integrity to this art, There's uh, there's a lot there, there's a lot to dig into, and I think... I let Jason kind of do the talking about his thoughts. But my thoughts are that it's a solid uh, step in the right direction and a fantastic uh, prank, if you will. And I love the music from I Rock, the fictional album uh, that was written solely for this purpose. So I sincerely hope that uh, several of these songs make their way into the fish rotation because the music is great and I gotta say uh, you know my snap judgment having listened to it maybe 10 times in two weeks I gotta say that it's you know if it were to be a fish album it'd probably be my favorite since undermined or round room um, you know, that's just one man's opinion but I love it and I'm going to be going back to that well more often than I do uh, some of fish's more recent efforts so we'll be back with J.A., and he's going to talk Vegas fish. Uh, J.A. is my friend of nearly 30 years. We met in elementary school. He appeared on the first episode. Um, I've been to hundreds of concerts with him, I traveled thousands of miles. He's one of my dearest and most trusted friends. He's somebody that I can see that knows more about shit than I do. And I pride myself on that. And I got a lot on this here uh, hard drive between my ears. But, you know, Jason is just a well of knowledge and perspective. 
is a unique way of looking at life and fish and music culture. And uh, He hosted a radio show in college back in the late 90s that he had me on from time to time and um, in some way that inspired me to do this all these years later and I've always had him sort of earmarked for a role on the podcast and who knows maybe we'll spin him off his own show down the road but coming up uh, live and direct from philadelphia pa my man ja talking the fish from vermont in las vegas nevada and we'll be right back What's going on, Brock? Hey, J.A., how you doing? Oh, just, you know, still loving the uh, Vegas shows. Really excited to talk to you about them. But real quick, last time you and I spoke, I started off with congratulations on you uh, entering the podcast world. But now i got to congratulate you on getting engaged. That's an amazing thing. God bless you. Oh, man, that's, that's really kind of you to say. Uh, obviously, we go back you know, uh, almost 30 years, and uh, I was very thrilled that you got to meet uh, Alicia earlier this year at the Eagles game. Fine and, uh, girl. Yeah, and uh, stoked uh, for the future with her, and yeah, man, thanks for saying that. I want to welcome you back to the Up Full Life podcast. You were on the pilot episode where you uh, dropped a bunch of knowledge on uh, the summer shenanigans of, of the fish from Vermont, and uh, people really appreciated that and responded to that, and uh you know, as I stated then, you're a noted Delaware Valley fish historian. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, obviously really expect, uh, respect your opinions. So I wanted to, you know, as you know, 20 years ago in 1998, um, I boarded an airplane. I paid cash at the counter, if you can think of that, with my little dog ear dreadlocks and got on a flight from Burlington, Vermont and went out to Vegas and saw the Velvet Underground Loaded set Halloween 98. So, uh, as they say, 20 years later, here we are. Uh, they're going back to Vegas. And because of the Halloween craziness, including the engagement, I was unable to also make uh, Vegas for the anniversary. Uh, that said, you and along with many of our shared uh, wonderful friends in this community were able to make the trip and uh, enjoy four nights of fish in Sin City once again. So, yeah, let's uh, let's kind of just talk a little bit about you. Know, for, the, for people who don't know, uh, we don't have – we don't have to, you know, go too deep into context, but talk a little bit about the vibe in the city of Vegas when fish is in town. Well, um, it's definitely heightened. You know, uh, obviously Vegas is packed seven days a week, 
But when fish is in town, you know, you're going to see some of the bros and stuff on the streets. And, you know, there's a more of a little bit of an extra energy in the air if you're a fan, of course. Do you, do you notice the fans sticking out when you're walking around? Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, definitely. You know, the, the fans actually wear more merchandise, I think, now more than they used to. Like when we were growing up, uh, it's an older fan base, you know. You can kind of tell. But uh, that being said, you know, like, yeah, you can definitely feel the energy of Vegas is just the energy of Vegas. And then you, you'll see your friends and family along the way. Yeah, you certainly will. And uh, just, you know, people say that Fish is kind of like a crazy party, wild atmosphere, which it certainly can be and has been in the past. But I would think that it's nothing compared to just, uh, you know, the average status quo Day in Las Vegas, Nevada. Absolutely. I'm blown away at how many hotel rooms are just packed on a Wednesday. You know, they're just, it's ready to go. It's a great town, whether you're going to go see uh, the hockey game now, fish, uh, any type of concert or show. It's just a great town with great energy. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, man. And uh, it's definitely appropriate environs for, you know, the Halloween uh, prank, as they say. In, uh, and I wanted to basically, I don't know, we got to take it from the top, if you will. They did a kind of different style this year, coming off uh, some heated shows, you know, like in Hampton and obviously the run in Chicago during Halloween. But they hit Vegas, and it was Halloween night one. So for those that don't know, you know, Fish uh, dons a quote-unquote musical costume. For many years, they covered uh, another band or artist's record in its entirety, uh, you know, you can look them they've up. They've done all the greats already. Yeah, like they've they've done a lot of greats. The Rolling yeah. Stones, uh, David Bowie most recently. They didn't do Zeppelin for Halloween. They did it a night before Halloween. That's correct. correct. Oh, but yeah, they've done Bowie, Velvet Underground, of course, Talking Heads, Stones, Festival 8, if you will. But, it, you know, then they did uh, something a bit different in 2014, also in Vegas with uh, the Thrilling Chilling. But this year, they really dealt themselves all the way in. No pun intended. Um, and I was lucky, uh, my buddy over at SiriusXM, uh, the great Ari Fink, sent me over the uh, segment they did so I could get the pronunciation correct for uh, l this fictional band that Fish created for this occasion. Um, just going off of, uh, you know, what I've read from Jam Bass and Scotty B, um, it, it was uh, an album called I Rock, I-R-O-K-K, by a Scandinavian outfit. Casbot boxed, which they claim trans, uh, translated into faceplant into rock in English. And Fish created a intricate backstory for uh, the band that included pages on like all music and the WFMU, as well as essays in the playbill containing quotes from members of Fish. Um, so you know they really, really, as they say in wrestling, they they sold it. And, uh, yeah, no, and actually, I don't know if you got an opportunity to uh, see the uh, recent Sasha Baron Cohen Showtime series. Uh, what's it called? I think I have seen a couple, like, clips uh, from uh, Who is America, I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an Israeli, like, guy. So he creates, like, four or five different characters, right? And, uh, and he, he meets with, you know, senators and uh, congressmen from around the country. And, of course, they vet him. And... I guess for months they created these fake personalities on the internet. They created followers and YouTube campaigns and et cetera. And it kind of reminded me of that because, um, you know, there's about a, you know, 90 minutes between you get the uh, playbill and showtime. So 
not like, you know, enough time to do incredible research there on your phone, but you're right. You Google it, a couple of these little things popped up. And um, it was interesting because then, you know, of course, you know, like a little closer to showtime, the Texas start rolling in. Like some of this stuff looks like it was just posted, you know? <laughs> so right. the gig kind of was like, uh, it was like 50-50, like what's going on here? All right, t- take me to the the moment. You walk into the venue, you get handed the fish bill, which for folks in the uh in the but not in the know, it's a like a traditional Broadway playbill uh little pamphlet booklet that you're presented on the way in which uh, with a sort of itinerary for the night's uh you know, activities and uh, performances if you will. So, you get handed that and you're looking at this eye Well, rock. actually, usually I would be uh that's how I would know. I'm usually in the poster line, and I'm one of the first people to get one of the playbills. But I wasn't particularly into any of the posters this year, so I didn't wait in line. And then our friend from home, Joe D, he sent me a text, like, Scandinavian uh, indie rock band calls me and tells me about this thing. And I was like, really? I was like, you know, but it's fish, so you never know, you know. Right, right. And, you know, they did the whole – the last Halloween that I attended was Wingsuit was wingsuit in uh in Atlantic City and you know it was almost it's kind of like been an evolution if you will like that was fish doing a fish album that had yet to be released and eventually came out sort of in the form of fuego some of the same songs but they presented a bunch of brand new music no one had ever heard before and i remember like the people were at least in the moment were kind of deflated or disappointed because the the zeppelin had happened the night before and everyone was so stoked and then the thrilling chilling was kind of an evolution from you know, wingsuit to, again, brand new music, uh, but uh, it was sort of a trick in the sense that they perverted that it had been, you know, from this Disney album, which, you know, the the album existed, but what they did was far and away more grandiose and ornate than the original. And now here we are, they create a fake band and go to the lengths that you described as far as, you know, seeding articles and reviews and sort of like uh, music industry history and lore. Um, but what I want to know, the reason I asked about you getting handed the playbill and going in, um, is okay, so you get in and you're waiting for the show to start, or even during the first set, which is they play original material. Um, what are you saying to your boys, or what are you talking to the rando fan next to you? Like, what was the sort of vibe with the anticipation of what might happen? Well, it, it's funny, because people still, like, you know, might have, were holding out for, like, a familiar record or, you know, a a curveball, no pun intended. And even like, I I just kind of, I kind of was like, I kind of understood what was about to happen. I kind of had a feeling that, yes, they were about to play this record that I think that they might have created, you know? Like, I I couldn't like put a 100% stamp of approval on, like, that was what it was. But it was like fishy, no pun intended, it felt fishy. But, yeah, I kind of, like, got the feeling that, yes, they were going to play this record, and I think that they might have written the record, but I wasn't 100% sure. Okay, so then they play, you know, solid first set. Very oh, alive, great right? first set. I mean, you're, you know, you're you getting ghost. Las Vegas. Well, the, I think it, it kicks off with Buried, Buried alive. alive Ghost. Yeah, Buried Alive Ghost. And then, you know, you get the first set. Um, you're holding the fish bill, you're talking to the people. Yeah, Hopefully you're not no, talking so, too much. Yeah, now that I'm looking at the set, like, um, I even got some texts from friends at home, like, when they're playing more, one of my friends is like, there's got to be something more to this. That That's not what they're playing second set. You know, like, 
really like you know reaching for something you know so set break they come back the arena quote plunged into darkness um the the curtains dropped to reveal a white curtain surrounding the band everything was white white lights white stratocaster white keyboards white drums white monitors so forth and uh white symbols white symbols yeah <laughs> very um, odd but and, yeah uh, so, so they come out with this I thought it was another great opportunity for Fish, um, you know, to take a chance with some production because there's such um, out there production nowadays with uh, the, where the Red Hot Chili Peppers have done on their last tour, what Kanye West has done. So they wound up creating this uh, these um, squares throughout the uh, venue. And I guess that was a way to keep the fans into the set while they were presenting a whole bunch of new music. And it was also like, I feel like Fish, um, I feel like Fish would like to probably do, I mean, of course I have no idea, but this is an opinion. More with production, you know, I remember a couple of years ago they came with that racing stripe behind them. The fans kind of didn't like it. Right, right. Um, they tried other different light setups. And, um, I feel like they might feel like since they come from the old school that they're kind of pigeonholed into just like having the light rack and, you know, nothing else you know they even you know back in the day remember they even had a little aquarium set up even in front of the monitors right. and stuff you know they kind of did away with all that stuff um so it was probably an awesome opportunity for uh their production team to like go out there and like you know do some fun stuff for the fans well it's funny that you say that because you can almost draw a, a direct line from the intention of what you're talking about with the production, like, hey, we're not fish for one set, so we can color outside the lines and do stuff and not worry about what fans think or are we changing things or blah, blah, blah. So not only did they go to crazy extremes with all the white, but obviously the the instruments, uh, you know, Trey used the Stratocaster, which informed the music. And really, exactly what you said about the production, you could draw the line directly to fish because uh, they – were able to, in essence, like write a record and perform a record of music that wasn't, in essence, theirs. And it was this fictional band. It was such a crazy thing to think of from an artistic intention. Like, hey, we're going to well, pretend to be somebody else, and then we're going to write yeah. a, a record in their voice and then perform it at our show like a cover record. There's so many, like, inverse kind of uh, layers to that. And then the music, I mean, I just kind of, you know, we've, we're 12 minutes and. I want to get to the songs because at the end of the day, like I look, I wasn't there. I looked at the photos, the aesthetic, the look, this sort of like uh, production, as you put it, looked tremendous. But the music was, you know, I was expecting not to like it. A, because you know I'm a, I'm a jaded vet, it's my DNA. And B, you know, I wasn't there and was just like, really, what they made play the fictional band's music on? Well, you, you you can't go into listening to music with a, that kind of point of view. I know. It's well, I'm just I'm just being honest that. Okay. The way I approached it was was skeptic. <laughs> just, How about that? Just I was skeptical, and therefore yeah. the pendulum swung back so hard in the other direction that you know I'm I'm prone to hyperbole, but you know I'll say that this is uh, like in terms of you know sets of music, or I, w I should say like an album of music of original material, a collection. Uh, this is my favorite. I mean, you know I'm a week into listening to it, and it's, it's my favorite since the well, Undermined or Round Room. I really think and, it's and, that you know, you strong. Said, it, it's kind of weird you said uh, about the introverses of all the, like, things. And how about the aspect that this is kind of a test that has already been tested multiple times. 
they've already kind of tested their audience that, hey, we can feed them a set twice of music they've never heard before. And, you know, one went okay and one went very well. Oh, yeah, so, people like, raved know, about the the thrilling chilling in 2014. Exactly. You know, in Atlantic City, I think, um, once again, you know, it, it hadn't been done before. So that was, like, groundbreaking when – after the uh, wingsuit, it was like, now Fish can do whatever they want on Halloween. You know, it might not be a record, it, you know. So, therefore, I guess Thrilling Chilling was a little bit easier to digest, and it was an incredible uh, piece of music. Yeah, I mean, just going through the record, because now it's up on Spotify, you can listen to it uh, as much as you'd like. Um, you know, these songs have staying power. These songs are like standalone good tunes and then several of them have definite potential to be jam vehicles um there's like you know go-to choruses and you know and like this you know, santos tune and uh we come we, are, we have come to outlive our brains and you know there's just so many uh, yeah, I songs that i think will find their way into the fish catalog and maybe become beloved chestnuts you know as if they are fish tunes, because they are fish tunes. And that talk about groundbreaking. I mean, I mean, put it this way: fish hasn't mattered like culturally relevant wise, other than ticket sales and numbers and Polestar and Billboard in a long time. Like they're kind of just like uh, sadly dismissed by the contemporary music world. But the very next day, November one, they were in Rolling Stone and Spin, like hot stories of the day. Fish pulls these elaborate pranks. So I think uh, on a macro level on a meta level if you will it was a success and then uh regarding the songs and just uh the performance and the potential i, I really I was, you know i'm humbled and i face planted myself you know like silly me for doubting these geniuses or thinking that they wouldn't deliver something monumentally artistic and ambitious and they did it uh you know they did it and how and I just, you know, I wanted to get on the phone with you because obviously we have these sort of nerd out sessions on our own and people responded to the one we had before. But I wanted to hear from you. Um, I, I just talked was, a lot. What I did you think? Fantastic. I, I mean, the songs are really good songs. What I thought was uh, interesting is the way, and it could be from the playbill, uh, you know, like some of the uh, outlets that cover the jam bands refer to it as Prague. It's not Prague. It, it's definitely, I feel like it's got a pop vibe. And if anything, like a funk pop vibe from like, you know, the 70s. Yeah, I think it's like a 70s rock album. Like 70s yeah. rock. Yeah, know? but don't, did you not, did you not notice that like a, a, people were calling it prog rock? Yeah, and, I, I think and, that that was the, no, the, there was no element of yes. I don't want to say that. Rush in it. I can't agree with there was no element. There was definitely like quirky little detours. And like the sort of like musical tendencies that lend itself to, you know, the house that Zappa built. Not so much Rush or Yes, but maybe with a lot of the synths, a little Yes. I just think uh, yeah, they're okay. kind of like aiming for like that era where Prague was sort of a, a dominant force in classic rock. But you're right. It's more like soundtrack it's, to Days of Confused rock. I'll tell you this, and I, I, no joking aside, if you want to go, I felt a little more ABBA than I felt Genesis, you know, like with the grooves. Yeah. Well, that's... Those are hairs that I'm not uh, an authority to split, so I'm going to trust your judgment. But that's not in a negative way. I'm saying, like, you know, right. no, I know. You I, know I, you're not you're not dancing to the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. You were dancing to these songs. Yeah, know? like Death Don't Hurt Very Long is going to be great when they start playing it and jamming it out. 
Yeah. You know, it was I, a fun, it was, they, they wrote a fun record and they were able to present it. It was great. Well, I'm glad that it delivered for you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to not only repeated listens to the one performance, but I'm looking forward to the songs uh, entering the pantheon of fantastic fish songs. And, and seeing where they take it. delivered a pretty good, you know, third set of fish. Well, I want to go. The, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but it was, it was the following night was one of the best fish shows in uh, 15 you years. Two nights, right? You're saying night three or night four? I, I'm sorry, night four. Night okay, four. I wanted to, because we were way over, but I don't want to cut you short without talking about that. Um, and my cousin, our Dan Granite, who came to visit me this weekend, we went to a couple J-Rad shows. Uh, all he really wanted to talk about and listen to in our spare time was that final night in Vegas, particularly the second set. Um, oh, it looks like split open and melt. Yeah, oh. 21 minutes. And and, and let, let's talk about split. I mean, we're jumping to the very end, but you know. and you know what? It, it was it got. You know how like it gets to that point sometimes when you're like, what song is this? I I had just gotten to that point, right? I was like, what? And then I knew it was melt as I was thinking it, and then they went right back into melt. It was like perfect. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I've noticed with. Um, with melts in the in the modern era that they do get bogged down and the what song is this yeah you know it, it, you need a little bit of like a focus to the story even if you do get way out there so yeah i was stoked to hear that um they went that deep like thirty thousand leagues subaqueous on the melt it came back and the, you know in essence like there was resolution to the melt it didn't just like go off the deep end but i mean that, no, that whole second perfect. set just and the whole night I would say, but the second I mean, set was the Karini Jammer opener. Yeah, let's just just run it run it down for me. What were your highlights from that last show? Uh, the whole thing, but the cross side. Uh, so it goes. We'll go. It goes. Karini, Forty Six Days, Sense and Subtle Sounds. I mean, those are some big jams. Yeah, I love Sense. sense I'm a huge. This is a big Sense. Into cross side. So I think when they go into cross side, you know, from here on, it's it's on. You know. So you get cross-eyed 2001 possum split, and it was uh, I was playing uh, cards uh, two days later, and um, my card dealer he was taken to the fish concert he had never seen it before. He's like, "What was up with that song possum? They just kept on saying possum." <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, and I don't feel like they played that. In the Velvet sea, character zero, but it's not it, 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 that set. That second set. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, I mean that's what it's all about, man. It looks amazing. It really okay, I've listened to it a couple times. You My know. good friend William Tall, huge uh, KG tour vet, said best show since Cincinnati 2003. That, wow. was, that was him. That's a hyperbole that makes me. Yeah, I mean, huge people were, you know, after the show, people get really excited too, as you know, when it's when it's a heater like that. I'm surprised, you know. People get people get proposed to, you know. They make statements that are not usually normal. <laughs> That's true, man. And well, I'm glad that you lived to tell the tale. I know Vegas, uh, you know, can be unkind to some folks, whether it's at the tables or, you know, their livers or. Oh, uh, it was boarding. a great time. A great time, all in all. Caught the disco biscuits one night at the Brooklyn Bowl. That right place up. is fantastic. It was just a great. Run, uh, How about this this Bisco side project that just played in Philly? Have you seen that yet? Star, Star Kitchen? Kitchen? I watched the rehearsals he was posting. They looked dope. Yeah, yeah, they had them at Ardmore. I guess they just played a few shows. Lots of success, so 
you know, Brownie's a friend of the show, so, you know, we love oh, Brownie. He's, a man. he's definitely a guest you got to get on. Oh, yeah, working on it. He did a, a pod not long ago with Andy Fresco. That was great. So Ironically, uh, we went to In-N-Out Burger, uh, me, Joey, Dave, Adam, and uh, we're walking out of In-N-Out Burger. Brownie's walking in to go meet Tom Marshall to go do his podcast. I don't know if I yeah. just let the cat out of the bag that uh, – that's a big guest coming up, but yeah, uh, whatever, you know, we're breaking news here. Yeah, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of Tom Marshall's pod, you know, it's uh, under, yeah, it's under the scales. Uh, for those out there listening or not familiar, it's under the scales on the Osiris Network. And if you're a fish nerd like Jason and me, there's a particular episode with Brad Sands, former tour manager of the fish. Which it's is, two-parter. It's, it's literally like one of the best podcast eps of any pod that I've ever listened yeah. to. I think the the Pollock one's good too. It's Pollock and his girlfriend. It's a pretty good episode too. They talk about the posters, the history of the art of fish. Uh, one more thing before I let you go. Um, first of all, I wanted to say that uh, you know I appreciate you taking the time to come on, and our friendships of great value and, and importance to me. And you know, well, you're you. you're an inspiration to me to do this pod, and to you know, my whole interest in music is fueled as a part of our friendship. And I want you to know that. I intend to have you on as long as you want to come, and it doesn't oh, always have to be fish, but uh, you're part of the Up for Life podcast, and, you know, we appreciate you. Oh, thank you, and I love the shows. The shows have been great. Can't wait to hear what you got coming up next. Yeah, you're, you're going to be tacked on, actually, with a, a very serious interview with uh, Katrina Breeze, a performance artist from New Orleans. I'll tell you more about it off the air, but you'll have to listen. But, you know, oh. I wanted to have some levity, some, like, you know, some, some good stuff in life, because our... Our topic's kind of heavy. But you'll have to give that a listen. And uh, last, oh, absolutely. last absolutely. parting shot, Lettuce played with the Colorado Symphony on Saturday night. Uh, a historic night. If my cousin and best friend wasn't here in, in the Bay, I would have been there. But I want you to check it out, man. It's like, you know, I know we've talked about Metallica with the oh, orchestra. Absolutely. And, like, this is just a monument. I just shit. saw the post about it. I, I, I definitely uh, sent me the link. I can't wait yeah. to listen. Well, it's only a bunch of fan vids now because they're doing a live DVD, so they didn't stream it. But you can get the picture. I'll send you a couple to check out. Nice. Uh, peace and love. Peace and love. No more autographs. Can't wait to uh, talk to you soon. Have a great night. Yeah, you too, J.A. Peace. Thanks. And that was my man, J.A., Talking to you about fish in Vegas. Now we're going to do an about face of sorts. Um, this is one of the more serious interviews I've ever done. Um, there's a lot of joy and beautiful art in it too. And a tremendous story. Uh, as I mentioned in the past uh, recently that I had uh, recently visited New Orleans and done a few interviews while I was there. And, uh, you know... During the course of uh, these interviews, shit got real. Um, not the least of which was with Miss Katrina Breeze. Um, obviously, we talk about her life and as an artist and her journey. Um, we talk uh, somewhat at length about her experience surrounding uh, Hurricane Katrina, as well as uh, her adopting the artist's name Katrina Breeze. Um, we talk a lot about different art projects and parade crew that she runs with called the Bearded Oysters um, and the Colossus Bike Zoo I Heart Louisiana and uh, Donna's Law which is 
something she's very active in right now regarding uh, gun rights for the mentally ill or the ability for them to sign a registry that would prevent them from purchasing firearms. Um, and that is a really difficult and uh, harrowing personal tale that she shares, uh, that she's been open about. There's been a newspaper article or three written about her just with regards to her mother's death, her mother's suicide, um, which took place at the Tree of Life, a very beloved and serene and peaceful uh, location uh, in New Orleans. And I've been there many times. And yeah, when uh, the news broke about her mom, obviously we were all devastated and our hearts ached for her and her family. Um, but in the aftermath, uh, like the phoenix she has shown herself to be time and time again in her life, as she details in this interview. Um, she's searching for a purpose and a meaning of sorts and result to this dark tale. Um, but we also go through a lot of her other phenomenal endeavors, as I mentioned. Uh, the Bearded Oysters, the Colossus Bike Zoo, Fantastic Casket, which is a its own thing, so uh, I don't want to give it all away, but I did want to let you guys know that towards the end of the interview, it gets uh, pretty serious, but it's, she is so brave and courageous and articulate and open, um, just, it's hard not to just love her for living through this so openly and so brave, um, so, you know, Karina, I love you, and uh, so grateful that you took the time to speak with me at length about your life. Um, now, I've known uh, Karina since my first few jazz fests. Uh, back in, I probably met her around 2001. Uh, and we stayed in touch periodically through the years. And I've always had a lot of admiration for her as an artist and as an activist and as a human being. And uh, never more so than having spoken with her on this beautiful afternoon at her, uh, you know, artist enclave in the Bywater area of New Orleans. So, without any further ado, uh, here comes Miss Katrina Breeze uh, on the Upful Life Podcast, Episode Five, and I'm your host, B. Getz. All right, and we're off. This is the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. And I'm coming to you uh, from the Bywater in New Orleans, Louisiana. Lucky to have Miss Katrina Breeze this afternoon as my guest. Uh, thank you, Katrina, for making time for us. Oh, thanks for coming all this way. Yeah, well, we're happy to be here. And we've got a lot to talk about today. So we'll just uh, start off with just a little bit about you. Now, I met you at one of my first Jazz Fests around 2002 or three. Exactly. Um, your partner was a friend of mine at the uh -huh. time, and we kind of came into each other's orbit. Mm -hmm. And I always felt a really special connection to you, mm -hmm. even though we were like a bunch of like sort of meat-headed bros that came down here to party. Mm -hmm. You probably were chuckling on the inside at us mm -hmm. a little bit. Well, like more like hippie bros. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bro, you're exactly. And uh, but nonetheless, like I just really, really always admired your spirit and uh, you know what you were about, and I've always paid attention ever since. So. Um, I'm glad that we're going to have this long-awaited powwow. And, yeah, me uh, too. Let's just talk a little bit about, you know, your history so people can get to know you a little bit. Are you from New Orleans? No, I was born in um, Boston, Massachusetts and grew up in the suburbs of Boston mostly and then 
when I was finished with college, I kind of just got in a musician's van and ended up here. <laughs> right on. What college did you go to? Um, I went to Hobart and William Smith um, outside of Syracuse. Right on. And did you study art there? I did not. I actually, I mean, I, I would say that I studied very little, but what my degree says is religious studies. Okay. Right on. <laughs> So you have some musician band and you found yourself in New Orleans. Now, when would you say that uh, you were an artist first or an activist first? Oh, I would say that I was a fashion designer first. Okay. And I, like, I had a lot of creative juice in me, but I didn't really have any products yet. And um, and then I was mostly working with um, like the musicians and. Um, doing like promotions for you know um, different bands and helping book tours and things like that and um, eventually I just realized that like I should put my own talents on tour and make my money off my own art. Right on and so what year was it when you arrived here in New Orleans? Uh, 2002. 2002 and uh, where did you settle down? What part of town? Um, in Holly Grove. For, for one day, and then we had a hurricane evacuation <laughs> and left the next day, and, you know, but I came back. Okay, back to Holly Grove? Mm-hmm. Right on. I, listeners might know that because Lil Wayne is always shouting out Holly Grove, but yes. what part of town, like, geographically? Is um, uptown. Uptown. Mm-hmm. Right on. So, uh, yeah, that's when I came to know you, just right about that time, and one memory I have of, of then is you were writing these kind of like spicy sort of like stories mm-hmm. for the internet back in the day. And I always thought that was just really cool. Like, really uh-huh. like um, is that something that you continue to do? No, um, I got that job oh. after college. I wanted to be a writer and I, you know, put my very small resume up on monster.com. And of course the only people who responded were the porno industry. <laughs> and essentially I was writing, um, like summaries for porno scripts and then I got this gig for this like this membership based website that was um, like all catfight based like women catfighting but it was in the early days of the internet and right. so I wasn't really able to like like I never saw any porno that that I was writing for it was just like you need to take this description and make it cleaner and so but one of the jobs was that the women would be fighting on on video, and then my job would be to essentially like play the role of one of the women by typing, you know, essentially like um, nasty words <laughs> over and over, like at her while they were fighting. Right on. Yeah, I'm glad you were impressed by that. <laughs> so it's just something that stuck with me. I mean, you know, I have an affinity for porno, like uh-huh. most of us do. And uh, I, when I was really young, you know, mm-hmm. I like was fascinated by penthouse letters and all that stuff mm-hmm. I mean, it's how you're figuring things out before you actually do it yourself yeah and I just was like wow this girl is really it's just like bold and you know like mm-hmm. you said dawn of the internet era and you know just one of the more powerful women it, not because of that but just mm-hmm. your you as my friend's girlfriend mm-hmm. represented just a really you know enigmatic and, and original unique mm, spirit you. of life Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always carried that, you know, mm-hmm. for you and thank from you. afar through the social media or just mm-hmm. our mutual friends. Um, 
I often think back the first time that I came here was when our mutual friend Jessica, mm -hmm. um, I was here for Carnival, and she's like, we got to go see mm -hmm. uh, Katrina. And, you know, it was funny because you had just evolved into so much more than what we're talking about, where you just had gotten here. And you're like, I'm a fashion designer. I should make art for myself. And then, you know, basically, I don't know, five, six, seven years later, I'd come to where we are now, which for those listening is the Bywater uh, area of town and the art lofts with a huge studio. Um, now, when I got here back then, you had only been here a short while mm -hmm. and it was pretty, you know, bare bones. Mm -hmm. And now it has blossomed into you know, quite a spectacle. Yeah. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about your arrival here at the lofts and what you've created here. Sure. Or um, create, I should say. My, I guess in, in 2002, I moved to Uptown, New Orleans, and then um, after a couple years, my mom came for Thanksgiving and um, stayed, and uh, so I needed to move her somewhere. So I decided that I would put her kind of in the community that I had Uptown and move to the complete opposite side of town <laughs> um, so that we could both be, in, we could share New Orleans, but we could both have our own space. And um this building that we're in now is, uh, it's a, 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 a restoration that was done. It was originally a garment factory that in the uh, Confederacy of Dunces, which is a hugely famous book here, the, um, yeah, the main book. character, this is where he worked. This was the oh, Levy really? Pants Factory. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and then uh, it sat for a long time. There were various incarnations of it, some of them legal, some of them not legal. But the last thing that was really here, other than kind of a, a roofless, enormous factory, um, was there were like a couple churches that had just kind of found corners of this building and were um, giving, you know, little Sunday talks or it was like a meetup in the community. Um, and then after Katrina, they... Uh, there was a lot of housing issues in New Orleans and people needed somewhere to live. So the um, the developers and the city, they worked together to create the Bywater Art Lofts, which is where we are now. And now there's 70 artists that live here and um, it's an amazing community. It's unlike anything that I've ever seen as far as artist housing. Like I feel very safe here. I feel... Um, very um, like held by an artistic community, much differently than um, other art, art communities I've been in that I feel like are more competitive. I feel like here people really want the best art possible going out the door and they want to help you create that. And the community sort of like fosters everybody's success as opposed to mm -hmm. trying to beat them to the front of the line. If yeah, you yeah. Interesting. And it seems like the people that are successful here um, myself included like when we get a gig that gig is is typically for more than one artist like we do a lot of um festivals and um movie scenes and things like that so there's times where um we have like 30 people that we need on a gig and things like that so it's it's nice to be able to just bring everyone in from from the neighbors and rally the troops to mm -hmm. yell out the door yeah right on now people are going to ask and I, i'm sure you've been over it a thousand times, but the name that you've taken. Mm -hmm. um, you referenced the storm and, and Katrina, mm -hmm. and obviously some of my listeners will know that the breeze part represents uh -huh. the you know, all-time NFL leading passer and champion of the city, Drew Brees, uh -huh. a quarterback. So Yes, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> seems, not everybody He listening. seems also popular. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, uh, In a different circle. <laughs> I would agree. 
I would agree. And, and I just maybe wanted to ask if you'd be uh, inclined to explain why sure. you took that as an artist's name or as a sort of nom de plume. Sure. Um, my birth name is Karina Nathan, and um, my name is Karina, K-A-R-I-N-A. Um, was always mistaken for Katrina. Like, even as a little girl, um, I used to say, um, my name's Katrina, but the T is silent. <laughs> and um, it was just like a name that always followed me and um, seemed to, I don't know, like, just be part of who I was, that I accepted, that I would I would answer to that name. I wouldn't tell people that was my name, you know. But um, after Katrina, it really became like... Um, people couldn't say my real name anymore. Like they were so uh, engrossed in, in Katrina that they would say like, Katrina, oh, Karina, I'm sorry, I meant to say Karina, you know? And, um, and I felt like that after the storm, I had a lot of power to bring back people like me, like young women creatives. Um, and the city wasn't really ready for that. The city was ready for roofers and, you know, emergency responders right. and, uh, you know, contractors and pallets of water and hot dog vendors and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I felt like that I had the power to really, like, bring young women back into the scene. And um, so at that time, I started calling myself Hurricane Karina. And I, I created this little, like, USO group of ladies and we'd dress up and we'd go around and it was so hot after Katrina we'd we'd bring people like popsicles and things like that and um just like throw them over the fences to guys that were uh typically like by themselves at their houses because their families were off on evacuation hadn't come home yet um so yeah it started out as Hurricane Karina and then um it uh, became Katrina not long afterwards. Um, I think that um, at first it was a name that was um, kind of more of like a character that I was playing. And then that character started wearing like, started winning like, you know, civic awards. <laughs> it's funny because in the beginning it was a name that I chose so that I could almost be dirtier and not worry about shaming my family. And then in the end, it's like, oh, wow, I guess I'm, I'm like a good girl and a hero. <laughs> so, I'll, so I'll stick with that name. Um, so uh, Katrina is obviously the, the destroyer of, of New Orleans. And um, she's also not from here, you know. And Drew Brees is, is um, the resurrector of New Orleans. And it's also like Katrina is the like the harsh storm and Breeze is like the soft, you know, like more romantic, you know, like that you would desire. And so I kind of see it as like the destroyer and the creator. And um, a lot of my work has been like that, you know, like as far as like, um, you know, when they talk about post Katrina Mardi Gras, I have to check my ego that that they're not talking about me. Right. Um, or or post Katrina, you know, just the art scene. I feel like um, that I've that that I am a different person now, and that um, like through that storm, I came out something different. And um, it was very much like in respect to Katrina and to like honor that struggle and 
unfortunately, um, a lot of people here like don't really see it that way. <laughs> I don't like. There's a lot of people that feel like to use the name Katrina is um, blasphemy. Blasphemy. Right. Yeah, that like. I've seen some blowback in like the mm -hmm. comments because you've gotten obviously a lot of media attention through the mm -hmm. years, and I anytime there's something published about you that comes across the feed, I always read it, mm -hmm. and inevitably, you know. Rule number one, don't read the comments. Yeah. Right? But I read the comments, and yeah, you could see there's people misunderstand. And, you know, it's a yeah. deep concept. I mean, it's just yeah. five minutes to explain it. And even still, it's just you just scratch the surface. Mm -hmm. um, but that dichotomy of destroyer and resurrector, I mean, that's powerful shit. Mm -hmm. And for people who have their own, you know, if they lived the storm or their family lived the storm, and they have their own, you know, recollections, and they're colored by tragedy, trauma, and all that stuff, mm -hmm. it may feel flippant to them. It may feel like right. they're making light mm -hmm. or, you know, irony or all mm -hmm. that. And while that's powerful artistically, and it certainly is like a social commentary, I mean, there's a lot of layers to mm -hmm. breeze. Yeah. Um, to the reader who's seeing this article or this person portrayed, and, you know, you, you push a lot of buttons. I mean, mm -hmm. you are, Which is so weird because I don't really feel like I do. Your personality I, does. I'm talking about your artwork. Is, but I is, feel like it's in some ways it's all so wholesome. It's just that society has demonized it. In some yeah, way. exactly. Right. Like I don't feel like I'm. I mean, it's I mean, like putting animals on bikes. You know. Yeah, it's just like, like not, not X-rated. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think really why people in Louisiana hate me is because I'm like a woman that they have to listen to sometimes. You know. And I think that they're very, like, threatened by, by me taking the word Katrina. It also, Katrina is the most powerful woman in town. Yeah. You know, like, when I travel and I say, oh, I'm Katrina from New Orleans, they're like, oh, we've heard of you, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like, like Katrina is more famous than the Neville brothers, you know? <laughs> um, so to, to take something um, so powerfully feminine is a, is really intense for for ten percent of people. Yeah. <laughs> those are the loud, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, but I, you know, like as whenever they're you know saying nasty things about my name on on the comments, I'm always so grateful that they're not saying nasty things that are like more would be more hurtful. Like right. they never talk about my art being bad. They just right. like hate my name, right. and like they. I mean, there's so many. You know, like there's so many other things that that my shame would be more sensitive to, you know, that they that luckily could the the hatred for the word Katrina um, almost catches all of that. And I never really have to hear anything that's that's more like heartbreaking, you know. Yeah. Interesting. I'm glad I asked. Now, you talked about, uh, you know, I was just curious before we move on, did you did you leave for the storm and aftermath, or did you ride it out? What, I did. Without going down that rabbit hole too far. Um, we had a parade, like, I don't know, the day before, the Saturday before. And um, so I, I decided I'd leave after the parade, which was kind of a mistake. I should have left before the parade. But in the end, I'm glad we had that last parade. Um, yeah, so I left um, kind of like right as it was coming in and ended up going like, I don't know, like maybe six miles an hour for like 12 hours out of here and spent the night in my car with my mom and uh, my boyfriend at the time and just like on the side of the road and eventually like made it 
after a couple days to Atlanta and um and then a couple days later we ended up borrowing like a vacation home of a friend of a friend in uh Aiken South Carolina home of James Brown right maybe I don't know we'll have to look that up yeah it's right next to Augusta oh then that makes sense yeah um yeah, so um, I was there for maybe like two weeks and, and then came back. Um, it was kind of like illegal to come back and there weren't really any street signs. Like I remember my notes were that like to get back in were really um, had a lot of detail. Like it would it would be like go exactly 84.2 miles and then like at the house with the boat and the roof take a left and go exactly 0.2 miles, you know, and um, there weren't any signs. So it was really hard to navigate and not all the roads were clear yet. So um, kind of like when you when you came towards Mississippi, all of a sudden it was like you could see where like the monster started walking in and you could see just like the trees smashed down and the the, um, the street signs gone. And it was like, OK, I guess this is like what a federal disaster zone looks like, you know, and um, and then I made it back, like, kind of illegally and snuck in, but um, the, the National Guard that was here was really just, like, a bunch of teenage boys from Mississippi that um, hadn't really, like, secured things, let's say. Um, so there was a lot of ways to, like, maneuver around and get around the, um, the, I guess, like, the military presence and sort of get to your house and stuff like that. Um, now that I, like, think back on it, I'm like, that was so stupid. That was so dangerous. Like, what, like, what did I even want that was here, you know? Like, I don't even know what, what I wanted. Items-wise? Or, or just, like... What did you want to come back to? Yeah, what did I want to come back to, you know? And um, there was really bad communication. Like, the cell phones didn't really work. And... Um, there were barely any landlines and there definitely wasn't internet and um it was a long time before there was like water or electricity um but it was it was a really fun time like it was like a blast you know like it was great to um I mean no one really had any jobs anymore and like everyone's job was just to help each other and um I I felt like well, actually, the thing I was coming home for was that I was scheduled to be a carnival queen in 2006. So, like, this city had to get its shit together so that I could, you know, roll with my crown. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, no way that wasn't happening. So, so, yeah, so I guess I was going to clean up the whole thing in order to be able to be the queen of carnival. Um, so, yeah, and I, I came back and I, you know, got a lot of skills and had a lot of experiences and... Um, really got to understand how how a city is built, how houses are built, how communication is built. Um, it was like getting a master's in engineering just to be able to see like everything ripped open and be able to understand like all the layers that are under us and above us and around us of infrastructure when they're gone, you know? Yeah, it had to be just an amazing thing to live. Mm-hmm. Not obviously the storm itself, but the aftermath, the mm-hmm. coming back, everything you described, and I appreciate that recollection and that reflection. It was powerful and colorful. You know? mm-hmm. um, so you had mentioned uh, about you were going to be a 
parade queen. Mm -hmm. So, um, when did uh, basically you start your parade troupe and, and that whole, you know, bearded oysters? Sure. Um, the bearded oysters started in 2004. So, pre-storm. Yeah, pre-storm. Was your parade queen, were you going to be, was that through the oysters? Um, well, it was through, I guess, through recognition of things that I had created, like the oysters, right. um, but also being really involved in helping the, the parade crew, um, I guess, like, become, like, financially stable by bringing them members and really participating in producing their parades and helping them and helping them, like, become a stronger crew so that they would, you know, go on for, you know, 100 years. Um, so I think that was some of the efforts that they were like honoring me with. I'd like to think sometimes they're like, oh, we just choose hot young girls, you know, so. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Um, so specific to the bearded oysters, um, mm -hmm. conceptually, you, you, what did you want to do there? Um, so the, in the, in the infancy? my first carnival, I saw this parade called Muses, which is, which was a brand new parade at the time. And it was all women. And it was really the first time that an all women's parade um, was the talk of town, that this was the best parade to see, and, um, and that it was all women, you know, which was pretty unusual for Carnival. And uh, so I went with, um, I don't know, some random person I met, and I saw the parade for the first time, and I saw this group called the Pussyfooters, and they were all just these, like, middle-aged women that were dressed super hot with, like, corsets and feathers and, you know, go-go boots and... Um, like just they looked like they were having the time of their lives and everyone was just eating it up and um, so after that my friend and I after carnival my friend and I called the pussyfooters to see if if we could be part of them and they said that they didn't accept women that were under 30 which being from Boston my perception would be that 20 year old women would be popular at Mardi Gras <laughs> But that's really not true. Like the um, the carnival clubs very much excluded women, especially in their twenties. And um, so there were there were experiences that women could have if they had a lot of money, but there wasn't much between a, a high school dance troupe and having thousands of dollars to actually ride in a crew. Um, so the pussy voters they were kind enough to. Um, say to me, how about you start one that's for women under 30 and we'll help you get it started. Um, so they, they really like gave me all their contacts and you know helped me get booked for the next year. And at that point, um, around that time, my mom came to live here and so, uh, and like she's the reason that I'm like this, you know, like she loves dancing and music and blasphemy and sexuality and um so, so yeah no <laughs> um so uh yeah so I wanted it to be all ages that was really important to me and um we always have been since the beginning we've had 16 year olds and we've had 70 year olds um participate um so at that time in carnival the the style of naming your group there were there were two women's groups um let's say in, in white carnival, because um, black carnival has a lot of other traditions. Um, but in, in white carnival, there were two women's groups at the time, the, uh, the camel toe steppers and the pussy footers. And the vagina monologues was like 
a, such a huge thing right now, then, and all the women's groups were beginning to um, name their groups like euphemisms about vagina. Pussy power. Pussy power. Right. But it was before pussy power. It was okay. like, it was, it, I, I feel like it was this era of like, um, that pussy power was about, I, I want to be sexy and I want to be allowed to, to do that, you know, in public. Um, so, you know, the, the feminism of it has very much shifted, you know, the, the messages of what these things mean and even the idea of having an all-female group nowadays. I don't, I don't even know if I agree with that. Um, um, so we were like, okay, we'll be the, the bearded clams because I'm a Yankee. And um, that seemed to be, like, in suit with what was going on. Um, so I went around the corner to Giacomo's, um, which is a seafood restaurant around here, and I asked if they had clamshells that I could have after, you know, their dinner rush, if they would be throwing out clamshells. And I don't I mean, I guess, like, I was so Yankee at that point to, like, even think that they would, like, no one has clamshells here. And so they were like, oh, yeah, we've got bushels of clamshells. And um, I was like, great, can you um, maybe just put the bushels in my front yard, like, Sunday night, you know, when you're all done with the weekend shifts. And um, so I opened my door Monday morning, and my yard's covered in nasty oyster shells. <laughs> and the whole thing just, like, reeks, oh you know. And so I was like, well, I guess we're the bearded oysters, because this makes way more sense, yeah. you know. Um, so that's how we became that, and then I titled myself the Mother Shucker. And I always love that, the Mother <laughs> Shucker. I do too. It's yeah. it's a nice title, and um, it's also helped sculpt my relationship with the women that have come through because I really have played like a, a mother role to a lot of them, which is fun. Um, so yeah, our first parade, I I found forty women to join me. I was bartending at the Maple Leaf Bar at the time, so I had a lot of access to. Um, you know, a fun population. And because there weren't hundreds of dance troops like there are now, it was very easy to recruit people. Um, so yeah, um, we had 40 women. And then the night before Katrina was actually our one year anniversary. And um, in that first year, we were able to do, um, you know, the biggest parades of carnival. And um, then over the years, like, in a funny way, we've been we've been lucky that our themes have continued to to fit into to what um, society finds like interesting and um, kind of like of the moment. You know, whether that's post BP oil spill and and we're representing the oysters. You know, or whether that's um, like through let's say like the the trans movement that that is, or trans awareness that's happening and acceptance now, um, I, f I feel like maybe we didn't do everything right, you know, but, but we did try. And I do think that we've, that, that our work in um, creating openness about like how gender looks um, has been positive for, for other movements in the future, even though we didn't realize they were coming at that point. Right on. I wanted to hear maybe a little more about how you, you know, aligned yourself or folded in the trans movement mm -hmm. to the parade club. Yeah, so um, bearded oysters um, obviously means <laughs> <laughs> vaginas with pubic hair. Um, so in the beginning when this started, pubic hair was like a really um, 
it was like a really big issue. Like I feel oh. like no, like I feel like most young people probably spent like way too many hours a week like thinking about what to do with their pubic yeah. hair. And it was like such a waste of brain space. And there were all these companies that were like marketing at women and all this like pornography and just like that women should be like totally hairless and you know Brazilians were in and you know all this yeah and but it was also confusing like it was like yeah like and like that like even if even if you went to the right magazine and looked up you know how to style your pubic hair and then styled your pubic hair you probably would like still have all this like weird shame that your pubic hair is still wrong and it was just this like bizarre um shaming of genitals really that happened in like the late 90s and early 2000s and um so part of it for me in the beginning was about um really like a pubic hair preservation society (laughs) (laughs) and and it and like I had women I had women friends that were like putting lasers you know on their on their crotches and um, doing all this like super weird shit that's probably pretty dangerous yeah. and spending Can't all this money and how are we going to go to Burning Man if like right. our pubic hair is going to grow? <laughs> you know, just total nonsense, total waste of headspace. Um, and uh, so I, I wanted to create um, sort of uh, acceptance of, of female body hair, you know, as part of it. And so we, we always wore merkins, so we had these like big hairy bush merkins that we would wear, and then we also wore facial hair. And um, we never really presented as, as men, we always presented as women with facial hair. And I think that, that um, to see that for people, and we're super sexy, you know, so um, there's a lot of internal dialogue that goes on in the audience when they're experiencing that like it's like it does not compute it's It's like like, it's like they're turned on but they hate themselves you know yeah and like they didn't know if we were like men yeah like like they didn't know if we were like men or women or you know just like bad people you know (laughs) um so there was there's always been a lot of playfulness in that and um and just sort of opening up the mind about what what does a gender look like you know like um like like even the fact that like i can't like like my pubic hair isn't my vagina you know like it's like it's it's like calling like (laughs) it's like it's like calling my eyebrows a mustache you know like it's it's like not the right it's like not even the right place you know so the idea that if someone is seeing my pubic hair, that they think that they're seeing my genitals right. is so fucked up right. because it's not even my genitals. Right. So, yeah, it is, it's strange. So we've, like, created... The, our, yeah, and then we should, like... So if we have this image that female genitals are essentially this, like, triangle of hair, and then, and then that we should remove this... And then where are your genitals? They're gone, you know? Like, it's just all so fucked up. And um, exactly the type of, like, fodder that makes Mardi Gras wonderful. Right. It really does. <laughs> yes. And just, uh, you had mentioned that you had 40 women when you mm-hmm. started. 
and a, a quick glance at your bio has it at 850. Is that a current number? Mm, um, we're probably getting close to 900, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Right on. So, you know, continuing on the, the Mardi Gras theme a little bit, um, just going through some of the stuff that I've read about you through the years, you uh, are known for something called the Mardi Gras. Yes, the Mardi Gras. Yeah, I thought that was super cool when I read up on that. Maybe mm-hmm. You might have of, been there when we is that came 2010? up. No, the, the Mardi Gras I came up with in 2003 for yeah, Mom's was, Ball. Yeah, I mean, that was the year that I think we met. Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't know if I recall. You might have had it, you mm-hmm. know, those were fuzzy times. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, let's tell the people about the Mardi Gras like um, then, and, and, you know, is it still uh, a thing? Um, so the Mardi Gras, um, when I first moved to New Orleans, my first carnival, um, I was invited to this like very special ball called Mom's Ball. And at the time there this was before cell phone cameras, so like you really could get wild at a party. And um and so the like I I didn't really have anything to wear and I didn't I didn't really have a lot of money and we didn't have we didn't have Amazon when I was growing <laughs> up. <laughs> we were poor with no Amazon. <laughs> um so I, I made these cones and I hot glued Mardi Gras beads on them and I made this sort of like Madonna-esque bra and um, actually yeah, two of them. That. Now you say, cause it was like from the Vogue video. Yeah. Pointy bras. Yeah. Right. And actually the, um, the boyfriend liked it so much he wanted one too. So, <laughs> so we had two of them and we went to the party and people just went wild for them. I mean, people were just like how do I buy one? Where can I get one? I want one. Give me yours. Have you named it already? The Mardi Bras? I think so. I think like right when we we made them, it became the Mardi Bras. It was pretty obvious in like its, you know, usage. You're wearing it. People coming up to you, oh my God, that's the greatest shit ever. What is it? You're like, it's my Mardi Bras. They're like, I want one. Yes. Yes. Okay. So then um, in the next year, I really went into production with it and I, I had a business partner and, um, we we sold like thousands of them, um, and like they they really did well. Like I mean, they were like on CNN at one point, and like MTV, and like people. I think they were exactly the the visual that people wanted to connect with Mardi Gras. You know, it's like sexual but not lurid. Mm-hmm. It's like boobs and beads, but in right. one. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the both worlds. Two birds with one stone. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a while and, um, I, I really couldn't figure out how to make money on it. Like we were selling thousands of them, but I, yeah. And And the, yeah. And so I decided to go get my MBA cause I was like, I don't know how the fuck to do this. Like, obviously like my, like in my mind, I was like, Versace never sold thousands of his first design. Like, I mean, this is like good, you know? Um, so, yeah, I went to MBA school, and um, it, it was nice because I really got to use the Mardi Gras as the the project instead of having kind of, like, m- mythical companies in my projects, you know? Like, if I was creating a marketing plan, I got to do it for my own reality rather than just for homework, yeah, you like know? Yeah, paper for school, mm-hmm. right? And, this uh, is your business you're working on for your MBA. Yeah, um, and... That, and then after, well, and then Katrina hit, so I stopped going to MBA school, but I kind of got enough, I think, maybe. <laughs> no, like, the nuts I would, like go get the money. I think that's the point. <laughs> like, <laughs> stop talking about stuff that isn't the money and go get the money, you know. 
Uh, I think that's the, the gist of right. MBA school. Um, and then I did that for a couple of years and eventually I just started making other designs that were like making more money. And, um, about five years ago, another, oh, well, I had tried to trademark it, um, during like right before Katrina, I had sent in an application for trademark and then, um, the communications, uh, all kind of failed because I didn't have a mailbox anymore and the, you know, the government couldn't send me mail to sign or whatever. So the application kind of got like abandoned. Um, and then like five years ago, this other company in town, um, who I kind of knew, they, uh, they filed for trademark on the words. And they didn't really have a Mardi Gras. They just were filing the trademark. And I was like, oh man, this is like it. Like now I have to go fight this. And, um, and I went to a lawyer and it turned out that my lawyer and their lawyer were the same person. So then we, all of a sudden, neither of us has a lawyer or a pro bono lawyer like right. we were accustomed to. <laughs> and, um, and Were these people in your same art community? Yeah. Okay. And, um, well aware of your work with it? I, they said they weren't, but, but I don't see how they, they, I don't see how they couldn't have known that. Um, and then during that time where the trademark thing was happening, um, I was working with organizations to figure out how to deal with the ecological and um, ethical crisis of Mardi Gras beads. And we had just received a report um, saying what was in the beads, and it was really bad. And it meant that what was in my bras was really bad. Um, so I stopped making them, and I, I, I fought like really hard for the trademark, and eventually I won. Um, I've never like fought so dirty in my life. Like sometimes like I think like looking back on that era, like I'm almost like glad that people didn't see that version of me. Like it was so like out for blood on a trademark, you know? Um, and it, so be, it kind of like... Protecting your art, protecting your, you know, mm -hmm. really your name. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but it was, it was definitely dark. Like it was hard to continue to love Mardi Bras when it was such an ugly thing. Sucking all this energy out. Yeah. Right. Um, like, even now, there's no Mardi Bras in this room. And um, my dad recently did an art piece for me entitled The, the Discovery of the, Mardi Gras, of the Mardi Bras. And I, like, haven't even been able to put it up because I'm like, oh, that just stresses me out. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the... You know, I'd asked you before about activism versus art. And, mm -hmm. um, you had said, you know, we've been talking a lot about art and the art you make in, like, the art commu artist community here. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point in time, activism sort of, you know, became neck and neck with the art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talked about the throws mm -hmm. and what is referred to as the greening of the gras. Mm -hmm. um, your bio said that it was around 2012 with the BP Deepwater Horizon. Mm -hmm. uh, tragedy. Mm -hmm. So maybe uh, help us understand how you uh, approached the sort of eco movement in the carnival culture. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think that I was very lucky that I avoided it only out of, I guess, like poverty because I my crews couldn't afford the beads. So we never involved ourselves by buying beads. But a lot of people who do Mardi Gras spend about $500 and up with about an average of $1,500 um, of how many beads they buy to throw. And um, 
There was a documentary that came out right before Katrina, and I, I, I know a lot of people have seen it. It's called Mardi Gras Made in China. Um, I think, unfortunately, because Katrina happened right after that Mardi Gras, um, we, we didn't really get to think about it and respond to the documentary that had been made. Um, but it really shows, like, where these beads come from and, um, and like, exactly where, like, whose, whose hands these beads come from. And it's um, mostly teenage women in China that, that live in um, a, a very structured environment that we would consider prison-like. You know, um, like they can't leave the property except for certain holidays and things like that. Um, and they live in dorms on the property. Um, so this documentary had come out about um, just where it comes from. Not that it was necessarily bad or good, but but where does where does this symbol come from? And how does it get here? And how do we get so much of it? And um, Around that time, I was making Mardi Gras, and I opened up a box of Mardi Gras beads, and there was just this, like, giant chunk of, like, a Chinese person's hair in it, and it wasn't like, you know, they had, like, cleaned out their hairbrush and accidentally put it here. It was like some machine ripped this hair out of their head, and it went in these beads, and now it's, like, in my hands, you know? And, wow. um, and it was really, like, a powerful moment. It fucked me up. Yeah, it was like traumatic. Like, you know, we were just trying to have fun, you know? Like, we don't need people having, you know, being scalped in China to have fun, you know? Had you already seen the documentary when the hair popped up? It was about the same time, you know? That's like the universe talking. Yeah. And and I wrote to that director, actually, who made that um, movie. His name's David Redman. And now he's become a friend of mine, and we've done work together since. but when we started looking at the Mardi Gras beads, there were a lot of issues. One of the issues was the amount of money that our city was spending on them, and then we're just essentially playing with them and throwing them in the trash. And then the other Single issue is, yeah, and then the other issue is the trash. Um, and some of the beads don't even make it to single use. You know, they they hit the ground and no one wants them. So at least fifty percent of the beads never even, you know, get Go to, yeah. Um, and most of them just get left at the parade routes. Um, swept up. Yeah. Um, which, who sweeps those up is another issue, too. You know, like what what prison complex got that contract, right. you know. Um, and then it, it just started feeling really dark. Like this, this thing, this object that had inspired me so much because it was everywhere and it was so colorful and it was so easy to craft with. All of a sudden I realized, like, this product is evil, and if I'm promoting it, on, not only am I exposing myself to whatever toxins are in it, You're but the whole yeah, yeah, like I'm, I'm making it okay for these because I'm the one that is giving them this recycling life that now we can say like, oh, we can recycle them, right. you know, um, and then there were there were other issues like, um, you know. The, the amount of lead that's in the beads. We eventually got the beads tested and the beads tested as high as 29,000 parts per million when the legal limit is about 90 parts per million. Wow. Um, so they're a very toxic product. Um, and the federal government doesn't get involved because they don't believe that children play with Mardi Gras beads and they think that Mardi Gras beads are 
boobs and beads and why would there be children so we don't have to worry about the lead content on that. Um, and, and since that, that research was done, there's also been a lot of research that shows that the, area, the land areas next to Mardi Gras parades are, have very high lead levels. And the Louisiana um, Department of Health and Hospitals has come out um, agreeing with this, these findings and also warning parents to, um, you know, when you get home from the parades, change all your clothes and, you know, no snacks at the parade and wow. um, also that the, the soil is bad and to be careful of that. Um, so yeah, it was really like a, a lot of things that um, also it, it pushes away a, an entire creative culture. Like is Mardi Gras about the music or is it some, you know, slave labor product from China, you know, like, but it is, it's some slave labor product from China. Like if you look at the billboards or you look at the buses or, I mean, if you look at the news and they have some, you know, just stock footage of Mardi Gras, it's always those beads that they're promoting. Right. Um, so that was kind of the, the work I was doing. I, I created a company called iHeart Louisiana that provided alternatives. So yeah, I was gonna ask, what, is, what are some of the solutions or like alternatives that you, mm -hmm. uh, helped bring into the culture? So we, we brought some art-based um, solutions or alternatives. Um, in my mind, I, I wish that the alternative for a bead doesn't have to be another bead. I feel like that's really small-minded. Right. Um, so I, I worked to create a, like a list of all the food products that were made in Louisiana that would be good for throws and worked with um, some food manufacturers to create like snack pack size versions with Mardi Gras branding that they could sell to the to the crews to throw instead of beads. Um, I've gotten out of the work because um, I kind of just, I didn't, I feel like I got knocked up by that project. Like, um, like I wasn't planning on having that project and all of a sudden I was just like knocked up and like had to deal with this like <laughs> thing. Um, so I had promised myself I would work on it three years. I felt like that was like, I don't know, like a, a, a like if as citizens of our country that we should donate some time to make our country a better place. Um, I think I was much more patriotic then. Um, but, but the idea that this was like kind of like my service that I could provide, you know, to, to my country and, um, you know, the land and also the culture here. Um, but eventually, you know, like I stopped doing that work and, um, does it continue? It does continue. So, um, it is in good hands. It's in better hands than my hands. Um, like now it's actually been picked up by like 501c3s and the mayor's office and other people. I think in a funny way, me quitting the effort and everyone and making, sort of an announcement that like now this effort has ended because I am walking away really forced a lot of people to say like, oh, well, we need to step up, right. you know, if we want this. That's awesome that people did, mm -hmm. you know, and that took it to the next level with the nonprofit. So. Yeah. Um, just last Thursday, I went to the first conference. It was called The Future of Mardi Gras. And it, it was really like all this work being presented to the city, um, you know, and coming up with alternatives and ideas and yeah. Right on. Well, let's do one more in the carnival art universe. Sure. Um, crew of Colossus and mm -hmm. the Colossus Bike Zoo. So when we were walking through here, um, you know, when you let us into the building, and I remembered this from my last visit here in, during Carnival in 2010, um, is this assortment of animal tricycles. Um, my first thought was, 
you know, when I'd been here in 2010, I hadn't been to Burning Man yet. And then I remember telling you when I got back from the one of the burns, and it was like, your bikes and Burning Man match made in heaven kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, but it's really native to New Orleans. It has nothing to do with the playa. It's both. Like, oh, okay. no, it does have to do with the playa. Right. Um, I went to, so I already had all that going on with Mardi Gras. Like, I had the bearded oysters at the time, and it was really successful. And um, I had a lot of opportunity to, um, I guess, like, influence carnival culture at that point because it was post Katrina, you know, and it was um, this new Mardi Gras that, that needed to to honor the ideas about things like climate change, you know, sure. that we were very, becoming very aware of. And um, also like the, the amount of waste that was going on in Mardi Gras, I wanted to come up with some solutions for that. So I went to Mardi, to Burning Man in 2007, it was the Green Man. And um, I, w I wanted to learn how to create like sustainable party culture and learned a lot. I mean, I went to like conference after meeting after, you know, like talk. Big I mean, yeah, like right. it was, it was. Um, I love that about the bird. Yeah. Like it's all party, 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 but there's like the meeting of the mm -hmm. most brilliant people. Yeah. Sharing ideas, mm -hmm. exchange of ideas. So I really enjoyed that. I really got inspired about that. And um, the the bearded oysters were doing great, but but there were a lot of calls from let's say like TV and festivals and um, that they couldn't book the bearded oysters because bearded oyster meant Content. vagina, right. you know, and um, so I was like, okay, I need another group that we can that we can book, you know, because vagina is like so X-rated and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is. That, family friendly right. you know we need something that's family friendly more so than vagina i guess um so that's when i i came home from burning man i made my first bike i made unicorn and it debuted in carnival um 2008 um and we used like all recycled materials and um super positive and everyone loved the unicorn and um there wasn't such a big art bike culture at that point so it was super unique to people to when you say art bike culture are you talking about here or on the playa everywhere okay. you know in the world i mean like art bikes have really yeah. even at the there, even the playa there was a lot more motorized well sure still yeah is. still is but i was saying by the time i got there in 2013 was my first burn and there there mm -hmm. was that's why I was like, mm -hmm. you know, I came back to you, like, your bike would be hit there, you know? Mm -hmm. Little did I know that it had been inspired by mm -hmm. that years earlier. So, you know, you come up with a family-friendly idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Burning Man's Labor Day weekend, Carnival's in February, so mm -hmm. six months later. Yeah. And I remember that was like, you know, that was sort of like social media was really at the dawn of, like, the Facebook era. I just remember knowing about and seeing images of you mm -hmm. on the bike in your full regal mm -hmm. um, and just being blown away. So when we just walked through, there's a full like airplane hangar. Full yeah. <laughs> so Unicorn gets a great response and you mm -hmm. decide that you're going to um, more. Well, when, one of the Mardi Gras crews, the Mardi Gras crew captains, they watch the parades and they, they try and find the best stuff and they try and recruit that stuff into the, into their um, into their parades and the, the people who run Mardi Gras parades, if, if they're, if they're really good at their job, what they're doing is they're essentially creating grant money for art to be created. 
they don't call it that, but it's sort of what it is. So um, this this other crew had seen the unicorn in muses, and they were like, how many can you build by next year? And, you know, we'll give you the money to build them. Um, when so they say they'll give you the money? They paid for the materials. Okay. Not and the uh, Not the time. But um, at that point in my life, it was super easy to get, like, 20 people to just come here for free and paper mache it all up, you know, like now my friends all want to get paid because they're bored. <laughs> my best friend that used to parade with me for years, like the parade on Saturday, he, um, I, I was like, you can just help me set up. I'll just pay you to help me set up and then pick up the truck at the end, but you don't even have to come in the parade anymore. <laughs> so I feel like my, my friends have really been like, um, like uh, it's just been really crammed down their throat with a lot of parade culture and you know now they're old and tired but back back they were they were very excited and very energetic and very young and very inspired and um so yeah we produced eight of them and then uh, for mardi gras 2009 mm -hmm. okay and then um we yeah and then we've kind of just kept building them um now there's about 25 in the world like in america and um, um, yeah. So any they're on doing... the pie, like any with uh, like theme camps? On the no, pie? there oh. has there they haven't gone out to Burning Man. Um, I was involved with a sculpture group this year for Burning Man, okay. and that asked me to build um, two bikes uh, to um, help them uh, kind of control the people um, that were interacting with their sculptures, okay. and. Um, and it really went to shit. <laughs> oh, the project did? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so the, the, those bikes didn't make it, but, um, but they're here. They paraded this weekend. Right yeah. On. Maybe one day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like Burning Man has enough art. Like, it sure does. I think that um, for me to go to Burning Man after Katrina had destroyed about like 90% of everything we had here, um, the... It was like, wow, how could I, how could I make art in New Orleans and take it away and bring it to Nevada sure. for, you know, rich people? Right. Like, those people need to come to New Orleans, and New Orleans needs art so bad right yeah, that's now. That's fair. That's fair. So I felt like I came out of there, and I was like, I'm just going to burn my life, and I did. Like, I feel like my life has become kind of the, the, the like, walking with the truth that I have come to understand through things like Burning Man, right. you know, and um, living that, living that and, and with like the integrity and the, you know, building, like really just building creative community and elevating consciousness like every day, yeah. you know, like that's sure. the job title, I guess now, you know. I think you do, it's just fascinating and you do a great job. I feel like you bring light to a lot of topics and issues and just even human emotions mm -hmm. that uh, it's easy to either overlook or the busyness of life or people, you know, are so self-absorbed in our, like, these times, you know, that I, I noticed when you were, uh, when I was reading your bio that the bike zoo, aside from the carnival culture, is also rooted in, you know, activism for animal. Yes. So uh, how did you incorporate that and, and how is it reflected in the art? Um... I have like a really special feeling with animals. Like I'm sure other people do, but maybe not everybody. Like I feel like um, I am very like sensitive to them. Like 
like I eat vegan, like I, um, I, I would, I just feel a lot of sensitivity to their plight and, um, and also to their, to like what a treasure they are, you know, and, and in my lifetime, I'm watching from being a little girl and Africa was just like fully stocked with everything we could have wanted for our zoos. And now it's like, you can barely get two pandas to fuck each other for less than a million (laughs) dollars, you know? Um, Were you always, did you always have that sort of like uh, kindred sort of spirit with animals? Yeah. Yeah. Like when I look back on my art, it's always been like, you know, animal themes, like, like even beard oysters. I mean, it's all been oyster themed and, um, I just like, I love animals so much. And I feel like, um, in the last, uh, like since the, the Colossus bike zoo has been built, there's been a lot more awareness of things like, um, blackfish and orcas and sea world and, what is a zoo and do we want to take our children to learn about um, how to be entertained by the exploitation of, you know, defenseless creatures. And um, so there's a, there's a big shift in, in how we think about interacting with animals um, now that there's not so many of them. And um, so I feel like the bike zoo is a way that we can interact with kind of the majesty of of animals and we can um have the have the joy and the excitement of seeing them without actually really exploiting any animals um i also upcycled materials for everything yeah everything is upcycled we use a lot of newspaper and i shouldn't say everything there's there's some stuff that isn't but um yeah like i i keep it really non-toxic and um for my own good and the planet um and you know, just, uh, I think I have like eco shame, you know, like we all have eco shame. Like we need to like recycle things and, you know, make ourselves feel better about ourselves. I was asleep at the wheel for a really long time. Mm -hmm. uh, My former partner, Jill is like an eco warrior and she really kind of just shamed me Mm -hmm. into, and I, yeah, at the time it was a, it was a, you know, conflict at times between us but you know to her credit and I love her for it to this day she was relentless mm-hmm. and completely revolutionized my attitudes and behaviors and habits mm-hmm. in regards to waste mm-hmm. the items I'm purchasing mm-hmm. right down to the water bottles you know mm-hmm. everything so uh, I think it's pretty awesome and that was something that really spoke to me mm-hmm. when I was reading up on the crew of Colossus so that's like what is the uh, alternative to the bearded oysters is the crew of Colossus and the Colossus bike zoo mm-hmm. which is the fleet mm-hmm. of something like 25 yes um, on the landing page for the podcast I'm going to embed a photograph or two cool. so people can see what we're talking about because nice it's pretty awesome and it's hard to imagine mm-hmm. without actually seeing it and not seeing it in person is how you got to see it uh-huh. really on the parade route yeah you know, it's majesty yeah but it's still pretty cool out there mm-hmm. you know right on so it seems that there's been a, a real you know, strong thread of activism in your art and your life in terms of how you've lived it and you know, really what motivates you to do all this amazing, fantastic stuff, activities, uh, community building. It's really um, you know, activism in its purest and, you know, form. You know, you're not 
just out there on social media or talking the talk, but you're on, you know, pounding the pavement and working with people. So, you know, I asked you in the beginning of the interview, you know, a- activism or art first. How about now? Are you an activist first or an artist? Sometimes I think, okay, before I was an activist, I used to think, am I a businesswoman or an artist? And then I used to, th- and then I was like, I think I'm a businesswoman. I think art is just the best business for me. But then when I started doing the activism work, I was like, am I a businesswoman or am I an artist or am I a radical, you know? And and I realized I'm a radical, you know, like the, I think that I'll kind of always be on the edge, you know? I think that I'm, I get a lot of time to think, you know? I'm really blessed with having um, the, the, the time to just like, get into my head and think about my ideas and think about like how I can communicate those ideas. And I think that, um, that that's really like the highest high is to, is to see not just the art, but the impact that the art can make, you know, like, like it's cool to ride a unicorn, but then like when that unicorn is at Occupy Wall Street leading a parade, like that's when that unicorn is really cool, you know? Yeah. And, uh, well, in line with some of the activism that you know, we've been talking about, uh, you mentioned to me off the air something that you were working on for a while. Uh, you referenced the death positive movement. Yes. Can you the, talk to us a little bit about how that came to be and what it entailed? Sure. So um, when it comes to the death industry, our, our country is pretty messed up. Um, it's a huge environmental disaster. It's also a um, Define the death industry for people. Sure, um, the the funeral uh, funeral undertaking. So essentially, an undertaker undertakes the rituals for your family on your behalf to help you um, deal with uh, getting rid of a body and having whatever ceremonies around that. Um, and so the there's a lot of things in there that are really just products like embalming. And embalming is a disgusting process um, that's filled with chemicals. And I'm not I'm not really sure there's any religion in the world that really condones what's going on with that. So I feel like it's, um, it's just something else they can sell and they've been selling it. And embalming was popularized when Abraham Lincoln died um, in our country. He was embalmed and his body was taken on a train around the country so that everyone could um, pay respects. But really, it became a huge advertisement for embalming. And then, um, you know, since then, we've been very committed to embalming and um, and also very quiet about what it is. Um, And the like in my life, as I started thinking about, you know, other people's funerals that I was helping plan and, and actually like seeing the pricing and, you know, Googling what these things were, um, it made me feel like I, I'm a, a DIY type of person, you know? Yeah, I can see that. And, <laughs> and um, any time someone is putting a bill in front of me about services that they can provide, my, my first reaction is, okay, which, which of these things can I do myself and, and possibly better? Um, so in, in my family, I, I was caring for a cousin that had uh, cancer and was dying um, about 10 years ago. And she was just a really remarkable lady. She was um, a 
a party producer in LA and had the nickname Lady Gaga before Lady Gaga had that nickname <laughs> and um, was just super special. And when I looked at caskets for her, I just felt like um, none of them seem right. They seem like for someone really boring and um, old and um, didn't really match. Um, so I built her a casket out of, in her garage, um, out of hundreds of family photos collaged on the inside and her seashell collection and um, on the outside. And it was just really beautiful what we created. And um, not only that, but it was really healing for our family to have something to do, to participate with. And before that, I thought that art therapy was like a fake thing. But but after that, I realized that it's really real and that um, like through uh, using your hands to acknowledge something, um, it can uh, help you move from like grief to mourning um, and and find a connection with your family, which is really important and produce something that you just saved thousands of dollars, you know, producing. Um, so and you're not contributing to the deaf industry in that regard, right. financially. Yeah. Um, so that's what we did in our family. And then um, I, I also took care of her body. Um, I went in and I did the body washing for her. And I was really scared. Like I had sort of declared that I was going to be doing that months in advance. And um, this was kind of like... I had wanted to do that, but this was, okay, like, here's the body that, you know, you can legally go do this to, so, you know, here's your chance, take your chance, and um, and I did it, and it was really like doing, like, acid with God, like, it was so <laughs> f amazing, like, I was wow. like, it, there was so much rush, like, it was like, I had this, just this, um, like, in intense, glorious feeling of, like, being trusted with with someone's body in a way that um like no one has no one has ever trusted me with their body like just to have a hundred percent complete you know control over over someone's dead body is um a pretty powerful and special and loving experience and um definitely worth doing I feel like people should uh, consider it if you know if it speaks to them um there's plenty of history of families doing that and um it's very special yeah it sounds it um so you this is the cousin that you had cared for for months with cancer and this was a probably offered you a fair amount of closure from that experience to, yes to watch the body and you know prepare mm -hmm. for the final rest mm -hmm. that's beautiful and that that is sort of sprouted into the diy casket thing which yeah you recently said that you much like the other work, you, you built it and then you left it in capable hands. Yeah, so um, I came up with fantasticcasket.com and um, I make art-based caskets um, out of all different things. A lot of them are fabric-based and don't have a structure. They're more like a shroud. Um, and really just trying to get people to think outside the box on caskets and death rituals and think about whether the rituals that they're experiencing um, through the death industry are actually functional because I, I believe that a lot of our death rituals are broken and that they're not giving us um, the medicine that they're supposed to be. That is powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're like depriving us of these like magical rituals where we could like actually feel healing, you know? 
to just sort of fit into their preconceived idea of how this is supposed to be mm -hmm. for everybody. This yeah. one size fits all. Well, I think it's remedy. just about um, what is a product. Right. You how know. We sell you things. Yeah. Yeah, your weakest and most vulnerable mm -hmm. moments. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they're all bad people. I've had good experience with funeral directors. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think that there's Likewise. a consciousness that that's shifting, where um, in the past uh, the way that we had funerals was that we just went to the same place that all of our family went to the local funeral home and you know let them do their thing and now people um people are more accustomed to things like reviews online yeah. you know it was just very recently that funeral homes by law even had to give you a price quote on the phone so like you had to actually go to there make an appointment and like sit even though you're like in all this grief and haven't slept in days and then like listen to a sales pitch and then if you don't like that go do another one right. you know Versus, I mean, today, like, we just look online, we just Google something, we just look at the reviews and pictures right. and make choices based on information. Right. Um, terms. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like people to um, be able to uh, choose death products and services on their own terms. And there's a lot of other um, people in the country, um, almost all women, that are working on this movement. And um, uh, there's a, a lot of a lot of momentum going on right now and and death is very much changing in in how it's um being observed and capitalized on and green funeral um products are like the hottest thing in the industry right now and people want green how do you feel about that because it's both sides of the coin it's like eco green which is mm -hmm. good and what you're all about but it's sell 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 products mm -hmm. which is kind of what trying to circumvent yeah I mean I guess it's, it's a necessary for me it's really just about like people having choices and people okay. understanding information and people and the laws supporting us to be able to receive that information so the death positive movement has very much um, through art and conversation brought a lot more awareness about what's going on behind the doors of funeral homes and um, forced force those funeral homes to kind of get a little bit modern and um, think about some options and, and also get competitive because a lot of them are risking um, being shut down by even larger corporate funeral homes. Right. So, you know, they better find their niche and, you know, identify with um, what their community really wants if they want to stay in business. Right. Target demographic. Mm -hmm. right. right on. Well, um, yeah, I've been... You know, when I finally moved out to the West Coast, I was exposed to the sex-positive movement, but this mm -hmm. is my first encounter with death-positive. So mm -hmm. thanks for shedding some light on that and something I'll probably revisit mm -hmm. and find out more about. But that's awesome, you know. Um, so it seems like our, our whole conversation and basically your, your life and your artistic path, your personal journey, has all been to get us to the point where, you know, we are today. And you were recently, you know, talking to me about Donna's Law, mm -hmm. something that's, you know, really taken over, you know, the forefront of your, of your life and your purpose. So uh, let's talk about what that's about and, sure. and what you're doing with it. Sure. So um, back in June, uh, my mother, who had been um, battling bipolar and 
um, different, I don't know, side effects of medications and, you know, a, a, a lifelong, um, you know, mental health issues and things like that. Um, she had been hospitalized and she left the hospital and a couple days later um, Googled gun stores New Orleans, went and bought a gun and shot herself um, at the Tree of Life in New Orleans. Um, and even though I had been um, aware that my mother could commit suicide my whole life and, and really that was like my biggest fear um, come true, but I was super shocked that it was with a gun. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, our family's very anti-gun. My mother was very anti-gun. My mother's recent Facebook profile picture was a, a gun with a red line through it. Um, so to, to hear that she had even put a gun in her hand seemed so unlike her. And, um, and I was shocked that someone um, who had been in... Uh, inpatient mental hospitals um, hadn't been registered in any way to prevent them from buying a gun. Um, yeah, so since then I've been um, working to develop a self-registry where people who would like to opt out of their Second Amendment rights are given the opportunity to create a self-defense um, against suicide. Um, where I live in Louisiana, uh, I, I can now inherit my mother's gun. Um, and, and the idea that people who ha have just experienced gun violence in their families and are at a lot of risk of, of self-harm um, could receive a gun that was just used by their family members to commit suicide um, was pretty shocking. And um, it, it launched me into learning a lot about guns and, and um, trying to understand what was going on and, and being a creative and being a solutionist and um, not being a gun, gun owner and, you know, having a lot of phobia about guns um, made me really think a lot about my relationship with guns and my relationship with this country's relationship with guns and um, the the world that, um, that guns and gun violence is creating for us. And, and, um, that, that second amendment's written pretty tight, unfortunately, yeah. you know, like cannot infringe at all, you know, yeah. on, on firearms. And, um, you know, I went, I, I read the second amendment and I was like, how can this be? How can, how can my mother have had access to guns? How can I have access to guns? You know, like, this is the sixth suicide in, in my family and of the ones that I've been able to decipher what happened, um, it seems like the majority are recently purchased firearms um, that were purchased for the purpose of suicide. Um, and I, I just had no idea like what was under the surface um, and been able to I guess like through my art celebrity been able to connect with um, amazing people in the gun control movement and um, gotten a lot of positive feedback on uh, this idea for the Donna Law, um, which would be a self-registry that someone could just put their name on if they, if they choose not to be able to purchase firearms. And they, it's reversible. They can take their name off whenever they want. Um, there would be a, a waiting period between 7 and 21 days um, for that process to reverse. 
So, I mean, in, for someone like me in a state like Louisiana, where there's no waiting period or cooling off period, um, if nothing else, this is a way that, that we can create um, that, that time for people to um, think through their decisions. Yeah, well, first, just allow me to offer my sincerest heartfelt condolences. Thank you. I remember, uh, I remember when uh, I saw the post. You know, first, like, the reason that I'm here talking to you about this is because you've been very open book of this whole experience, really your whole life in mm -hmm. art and otherwise, but particularly this very personal experience. Sometimes I think maybe I have bigger shames. <laughs> like they're like, oh, you're so honest about you must be ashamed, of, you know, or confronting your shames. I'm like, no, I got better shames than this. This is just what's suitable. For the yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was obviously, a, you know, you made the post announcing what happened. Um, and my heart ached for you, obviously. But at the same time, you know, I just, I love the tree of life, like many of people. Like, I don't even live here, and I have, like, a very, very deep-rooted affinity for that place. Mm -hmm. I've gone there to meditate on things, mm -hmm. and from silly romantic things to far more serious nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that your mother chose there just rocked me. Mm -hmm. um, I called and texted several people that I've had profound experiences with at the tree of life to just share this, like... Mm -hmm. My friend's mom just did this there, mm -hmm. and you know, powerful. So, um, you know, you, you came on to social media and you started to talk about it, and you know, people obviously rallied around you, and you've been able to connect with folks mm -hmm. and, and really bring light to this topic. Mm -hmm. that when we were talking outside, you were talking a little bit about um, the sort of judgment and shame and sort of denial of death. Mm -hmm. and everything that comes with it and everything from like the vernacular that you choose to use when discussing these matters right down to the fact that you know you are literally talking about your own fate mm -hmm. um, regarding the inheriting the gun and mm -hmm. your family's history I mean I should tell the listeners that before we started this part of the conversation uh, Karina opened up a Smith & Wesson box that formerly held the firearm that her mom purchased the first thing you see when you open the box is a giant font congratulations, which is very ominous, um, along with the uh, pink for breast cancer awareness box of bullets. So many light and proudly displayed American flag. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, made so in the USA. Made I mean, in the there's USA. there anything more American than a Smith and Wesson, you know? Yeah. No. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to basically just honor your process here, mm. um, and with a deep bow of reverence Thank you. and respect, um, because you know a tragedy and a trauma like this could really level somebody personally. Mm -hmm. But it's almost been fuel for you to again spring into activist yeah. Katrina mode and make a difference yeah I mean I think that well first off I want to say that like I'm I'm not a super person most of the time you know like my media and social media persona is like such a tiny amount of like my who yeah who I am you know and and like I I mean 
I don't want anyone who's had this happen in their family to think like, oh, well, she got better. How come I'm not better from right. it? You know, because I'm not better from right. it. And How um, could you be? yeah, like it's really, um, it's really intense, you know. And I, I think that um, when I, when it happened to me, and I thought about things like this happening in my friends' lives, and I thought about the consequences of the choices that they made after a tragedy like this, you know, like you know, am I going to start smoking cigarettes again? You know, am I going to, you know, like gain a bunch of weight? Like, like, what are my vices now, you know, and or, or which vices of my past don't I want to touch, you know, and, and also, I felt so shitty that like, the idea of like, oh, well, do I want to eat sugar? Well, what if I feel worse after I eat the sugar? I don't know if I can handle feeling any worse, you know, and um, trying to protect myself from like so many of those things. And, um, and I'm really grateful that like what I saw of myself in the process was that I was someone that first off, you know, makes a parade, you know, like that's what we did. We made a parade for her, yeah. you know, and, and I that's, that's definitely like, okay, I'm still myself, you know, I, I, I got through that. I did the right things. And the and community really came out for that. Didn't yeah. It? Yeah. It was really beautiful. Um, and then, um, just like the like sometimes I feel like in the beginning when this first happened it was a lot easier to be vocal about the tragedy and about the legislation efforts in the immediate um, aftermath aftermath, um, because I essentially just wanted to like yell at the world you know and this was a, a way that I could like be super loud and like be heard and um like through the talk of that, okay, like I'm working on this law, like actually really receive a lot of like beautiful love from not just like my friends, but like strangers on the internet. And um, I mean, I have people now that like have read about the work I'm doing and like, just like come up to me like at the grocery store and like cry in front of me, you know, and I have people that um, write to me about like how they want to, <coughs> how they want to be on this list and, um and I think that through this, also, I've been able to have another layer of honesty, which is about, like, having this happen to me makes me want to shoot myself and makes me feel like I want to go to the gun store and go, you know, buy a gun from the guy who just sold this to my mom. And I want to, like, shoot my head, like, right in the gun store, you know, with, like, a, you know. And, like, an act of, like, spiteful retribution almost yeah and just like not even wanting to like experience the emotions that this takes or like the physicality or the panic you know i mean like the um did you have any of the stages of grief or did you go right into donna's i feel like it like i thought that you know like that grief was like these stages and it's it's more like this like spiral pile landfill <laughs> that like creeps up like in all these ways and like it's very unexpected and um, I think that like I've I've tried to really behave myself like I think that by studying it I've learned like you know like I don't I don't want to like yell at my boyfriend because I'm angry about this or you know like I want to you know mate I don't want to wreck my life. Right. You know, and um, but you're entitled to some just pure unbridled rage. Yeah, but I like one thing I've realized in this and about dealing with mental health issues is like we're we're all okay with like if a friend of ours is like 
you know, and myself included, like if I say like this experience makes me want to kill myself and then, you know, my friend would be like, oh, well, don't do that because all these good things are going to happen. And, and then as someone who is thinking about killing themselves, then your reaction is like, okay, I'm going to just like stop talking about this and let this friend think that the love that they just gave me worked and and move on, you know? Like, I mean, I have friends that are like, how are you really doing? And I'm like, I want to fucking die. <laughs> and they're like, it's going to be okay. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean... They're coming from a place of a genuine place. I mean, nobody knows. There's no playbook yeah. for your friend's mom who mm-hmm. just killed herself. Yeah, and trying to give her the gun back. Right. You know, like your especially your situation is very unique and mm-hmm. particularly painful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of re- reiterate for the people that are listening the the concept of the fact that your mom suffered from mental illness her entire life mm-hmm. was vocally against firearms mm-hmm. in her life. And, and said so mm-hmm. um, would have signed this registry oh yeah for sure especially when we were was kids able to do something as simple as a google search mm-hmm. jump in the car buy the gun and that afternoon it was she was gone yeah i mean i don't care about the second amendment like you know the the, the folks that wave the second mm-hmm. amendment flag like if you're a human being that mm-hmm. has to affect you mm-hmm. there has to be uh, precautions that can mm-hmm. be put into place um so uh, not that i want to sh- give well, short shrift to what happened but i kind of want to focus now on how can somebody like me mm-hmm. or a listener out there even if they don't live in louisiana mm-hmm. how can they you know work towards this registry well i know like it's um it's about to happen in california so you can you it's know further along in the process yes out there. yeah Bunch and, of lefties out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's those righties that usually <laughs> kill themselves with the guns. If you True. you know, like the most likely person to kill himself with the gun is, you know, probably like an NRA member. You know, right. like but it's really the ones to fight hardest against this registry. Well, no, in their world it's like they, you give them an inch. They I thought they out. would. Like I thought that like I'm gonna start talking and then I'm gonna get death threats and they're gonna you know kill my life you know because I've, I've actually encountered a lot of like resistance and harassment and death threats and stuff from through the... from other work right. I've done um, and so I was like well here it comes you know and um, and actually in a funny way I was so suicidal that I was like Let bring, them, it on. bring it on <laughs> you know like yeah. how about how about y'all say some mean shit and I'll shoot myself and then and then I'll have made my point you know and um, so, yeah, in the beginning, I really felt like, okay, bring it on, you know, bring your semi-automatics and shoot me or whatever for saying this. And, but actually, I was so surprised. There was so much love from so many people that I was not expecting, you know, like, I, like, my opinions about Republicans has, like, totally shifted since this experience. Like, like, we've allowed Republicans to just, like, equal Trump and allowed Trump to, trump our relationships with other people in our communities and to divide us and i i am so surprised and grateful like how many republicans have gotten on board with this and how many nra members and and actually the nra has said that they won't oppose this and really yeah officially 
well, well like, to, uh, like that to you. yeah i mean there's other there's other groups like the nra is very organized right. and you know in a way it's nice to work with them because they're they have a structure there's lots of other whacked out gun yeah, groups you know militia types yeah that um especially you know. out here yeah. Louisiana. Yeah. Well, everywhere. Yeah, in the Pacific Northwest too. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and I guess there are. They we have the state of Jefferson mm-hmm. out there in California. You know mm-hmm. about that? No. It's, yeah, they've seceded. It's like uh-huh. they have their own constitution, and it's all firearms. It's uh-huh. pretty intense. They call themselves the state of Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're right. It's not native to just this region, but yeah. it's fervent here. There's and a lot of, sloppier. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of uh, you know armed. Mm-hmm. angry folks yes out in the sticks yeah for sure and um like one thing i realized about about this is like i had this vision that like you know 51 percent of our country was these like nra holes that like you know just cold dead hands second yeah. amendment people but really they're not and that's what the far left liberals have demonized yeah in that regard and when you really like like i realized that in order to create a gun control law I was going to need to understand guns and I was going to have to understand people who own guns. And I had so many friends since my mom shot herself that have come up to me and said, I've been so scared to tell you, but I'm an NRA member and I own guns and I support what you're doing. And that's just so beautiful, you know, because it's, it's not about intruders. It's about, it's about shooting yourself, you know, like, like, are we, like when I think about this, like the bad guy with the gun needs a good guy with the gun. Right. It's like, it's like maybe I'm the bad guy with the gun. Right. You know, like maybe maybe I need some opportunity to to um, have a little space. You know, from from guns. You know, or from impulse. Mm-hmm. And from impulse and shopping. You know, yeah. it's really like a shopping problem. <laughs> a lot of the gun issues is a shopping problem. Like three percent of the people in our country own 50% of the guns. So these people right. have like so many guns, right. you well, know? When you talk to them, I, it's funny, I went to this hardly strictly bluegrass festival, it's called in San Francisco, as the name states, it's a bluegrass festival with not a lot of bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And I just struck up this conversation with this cat from Florida that I know from the Swanee festivals and stuff. And, you know, we're music, weed, we're on the same team on just about everything, mm-hmm. except he's, he's a gun guy, hardcore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't. I didn't ask him his thoughts mm-hmm. on Donna's law, but I will when I see mm-hmm. him next week. He'll probably week. support it. Right. Anyone with the heart should. In yeah. My I mean, you got to be. But the, what I'm saying is, like, when we do dif- uh, differ, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that fuck, you really need all that guns for? Mm-hmm. And he, with a straight face, is like, you know, the government, and when mm-hmm. when they come for you, how you, when they're coming for you, I'm like, are you serious, dude? Mm-hmm. And they really are. You mm-hmm. know, they believe that there might be an Armageddon one mm-hmm. day, and they're gonna need a. Uh, artillery for it mm-hmm. and the way i see it is like that's happening we're fucked anyway so we right don't care. yeah you know what i mean come for me right but that's i feel like climate much. change is gonna wash all these guns into the gulf anyway yeah. well then, then we'd be able to say i told you so on the way down <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i mean i feel like the only reason i need a gun in the apocalypse is to like off myself in case right. i can't deal with it you know i'm back to square one <laughs> right like there's no i mean Guns don't offer protection unless you're highly trained in right. guns. And even then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's serious, serious stuff. And I really want to say thank you for sharing not just that, but particularly this personal and really excruciating tale of what you've had to live through and what, sadly, your mom didn't live through. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's, it's 
I don't really have the words to describe the, the feelings that come over me when I think about the action you're taking and the fact that you're not, you obviously, your self-preservation, you're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to want to do this. And, mm-hmm. um, but you're also, you're trying to make it so that other people don't have to live through this, don't have to do it to themselves or their families, don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the aftermath. And, mm-hmm. and I think like, you know, just placing that box on the table and opening it up, you didn't really even have to say a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Just really powerful image that I know I'll carry with me for mm-hmm. the rest of my days. And uh, so people who want to check you out, not just the serious stuff with the registry, but particularly that, or the art. Mm-hmm. It's like a home base online or Instagram or Facebook. Or sure. How do people get you? Katrina Breeze. Katrina Breeze on yeah. Facebook and Instagram. All of it. Katrina yeah. Breeze Twitter. on Google. Google. I, I don't Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I don't much. I'm starting to with the podcast mm-hmm. just because uh-huh. apparently you can but, reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, don't tweet yeah. Either. People can tweet about me there, I guess. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, this um, has um, really been amazing. Uh, power. Yeah. And I'm yeah, thank super you. grateful. And I'm glad that, you know, we're in each other's lives. And, you know, I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank I'm you. i to call you a friend. Thank you. Me too. Appreciate you. Right on. Well, this has been the Up for Life podcast from New Orleans, Louisiana with Ms. Katrina Breeze. And I'm your host, B. Getz, and we'll see you next time. And we're back on the Up Full Life podcast. Coming up next, we've got the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, where every week I pick a song or a jam or a collaboration or a passage of music that makes me feel some type of way or I feel like y'all should be hip to. And uh, uh, this time, fresh off of Swanee Halloween, we're going to throw it back to the homies. Uh, MZG, uh, Zach and Charles Weiner, the Twinsies, uh, legends of Swanee and, uh, you know, Jacksonville area, Florida, really. Um, They've been in the game separately in different endeavors for the better part of a decade. And for the past, like, three, four years, they've sort of dropped all their other various projects and unified uh, in one theory, Uh, MZG, short for Monozygotic, uh, is their project together, electronic dance music of many types, uh, really not limited to genres, uh, they do it all. I featured them in my last two Halloween pieces, uh, 2017 and 2018, and uh, they're constantly releasing dope new original music on the reg, and uh, yeah, if you don't know, you better ask somebody, because... MZG, I really believe these guys are going to become superstars. Um, They're very handsome gents. They're extremely skilled musicians. Not just producers or button pushers. These cats can play and make music with instruments and make magic with software and keyboards, programming, drum pads. So, uh, you know, sky's the limit. Uh, shout out to their management, uh, Whit Hawkins and his crew, doing big things out in Colorado. Finally scooped the Twinsies out of the comforting environs of Duval County and got them out to the front range in the mecca of all things electronic music and cannabis. And I just am so pumped for the future of MZG. So with all that said, coming up next is Wait a Minute, which is a just a slamming tune um, that I dug from these guys for a minute now. and Check out the Twin Pack EP that's coming out real soon. 
and uh, or excuse me, it's out. Twin Pack is out. Check out uh, with Twin Pack Two and Meme ZG. These dudes are just dropping records so fast I can't keep up, and that's my job. They're just on it. So here comes Wait a Minute MZG, the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, and that'll be it for episode number five of the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host. B gets, and we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy. Oh.